Folks, see that flashing sign up there? Now that sign says, applesauce. No, no, I, I'm kidding. It says, applause. All right. Now, remember, we're on in 10 seconds, so get ready to have a good time. All right, here we go. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I'm Patrick Rapol. And I'm Jim Laskowski. We have a very special guest with us once again this week. Um, my good friend Colin Suter is with us. Hello. Hello, Colin. How you doing? Good. Very good. Excellent. Um, yeah, we, we've been friends for a while, and uh, you know, we met through uh, eFilmCritic.com and Hollywood Bitch Slap, uh, and we collaborated on a couple of documentaries, and uh, you're currently in post-production on your first short film, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, it's a my first first short film uh written made from a, you know, screenplay that I wrote working with actors. It's very new for me. So, yeah. <laughs> That's exciting. Cool. It is exciting. I believe you're the first oh. director that we've had on. Yeah. That was oh, correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't have the body of work that, you know, actual real directors have. Well, but, we're not going uh, to we're not going to do an episode on you. Okay. <laughs> we, we could. He, he he's done two movies, you know. I feel this might be moving too fast. Maybe. We're we're not ready. Yeah, yeah. That would be too much. Yeah. Um. Though what we are going to do an episode on uh, today is David Gordon Green. Yes. We're going to be covering. Uh, he had he had a new movie come out recently that flopped and critical and commercial, I believe, failure. Uh, Your Highness. But before he was doing sort of apato like comedies and. Uh, he was a very interesting uh, director in the vein of you know something like Terrence Malick. So we're going to be covering his first two movies, George Washington and All the Real Girls. Correct. Well, his first two features. He has two shorts before that, I believe. Yes. Um, yeah, he, he made my top five uh, favorite directors list for mainly his earlier work. And um, it'll be very interesting to discuss his first two films. Um, and also, uh, Colin... Uh, I mentioned to you that um, we're going to start a regular feature with each guest in sort of relaying your top five favorite filmmakers, your favorite directors. Oh, okay. um, so if you want to rattle those off, we'll do okay. that. We'll do that to start, and then we'll 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 dive into a couple of very short emails we got as well. So. Okay. So name and re- you know and the reason why or just, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah a, a brief okay. reason why sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I mean, David Gordon Green is on the list. I mean, uh, just especially just based on you know those first four films and Pineapple Express, which I I think is a brilliant comedy. Same. Um, you know, we'll I mean we'll dive into reasons why you know later on, but right. uh, he's definitely in there. Uh, Peter Jackson is another one, um, just because I think every frame of his every one of his movies, even the lovely bones just oozes with passion for the medium, for every aspect of the medium. Um, you know, he just, he just pours his heart into everything and just, you know, manages to 
not let the special effects overwhelm everything else. Okay, maybe so. Maybe a little bit with the lovely bones, but uh, King you know, Kong. Yeah. No, King Kong is King Kong is a beautiful movie. <laughs> okay. Oh, King Kong is uh, awesome. Just awesome. Uh, Terry Gilliam has always been one of my favorites, even when he fails. You know, that's the thing with when you're a fan of somebody, you got to let them fail once in a while and not you know hold it against them or you know just especially when they have such a strong body of work preceding that failure or after that failure, or whatever. Yeah, I think um, I think that's a good sign of like a really great filmmaker is you know they try different things and obviously it's not always successful, but the result is usually still interesting. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And you know Terry Gilliam, that failure would be Tideland, obviously. Oh, yes. <laughs> and maybe maybe there was you know one or two others in there that were less than stellar, but uh, but his he's definitely just been one of those directors whose his voice is uniquely his own, and nobody nobody can else does what he does. Um, my sentimental favorite, you know, I mean a sentimental favorite for me is still to this day Steven Spielberg. You know, um, I'm always interested in what he's doing next. He's the guy responsible for me being a movie freak starting in 1982 when I saw E.T. for the first time. That was it. I was sold on movies for the rest of my life, and I have him to thank for that. And uh, his career has been fascinating to watch for the last several decades. And, um, you know, I'm still watching, waiting with anticipation to see what comes next. And uh, just for... I guess it's another sentimental favorite, just going way back, uh, you know, Charlie Chaplin. I mean, you know, the guy knows how to, I mean, obviously, because he directed silent films, he knows a lot about visual storytelling. Um, And, you know, that's sort of a lost art nowadays. Uh, You know, every once in a while, a a movie will come around that is Chaplin-esque in its storytelling. And I think the last movie to do that was Pixar's WALL-E. And if this was a top six list, I would say I would put Pixar on the list, even though it's not a director. It's uh, <laughs> right. I think it, Pixar is, has accomplished so uh, you know as much greatness as you know uh, Alfred Hitchcock or you know Scorsese, uh, yeah. Scorsese or uh, Billy Wilder. You know, I think it really Pixar's has been an, an astounding run for them. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. So there you go. That's my that's that's the list I threw together. Of course, now they're doing cars too. So well, you know, you never again, know. You got to let them fail. Once <laughs> yeah, again. that's true. Yeah, that's, and they're doing it. They're doing it to 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 you know please the uh, the shareholders who you know were starting to get a little nervous when they saw trailers for Up and realized there's no real commercial value in it. It's mm-hmm. you know it's not a lot, lot of action old man figures. In a flying house. So you know they just uh, so they're like okay 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 let's we'll we'll do Toy Story three we'll do Cars two and then we can start doing our Wallies and our ups and our Ratatouilles <laughs> again so you know after this things are gonna pick up for Pixar so yeah when you mentioned E T um, it immediately made me think of the movie that kind of got me hooked on movies and that was Back to the Future um, I thought I thought you were going to say Mac and me <laughs> <laughs> no unfortunately not <sighs> never I saw that. Yeah, you know what? I never saw that either. No, Mm-mm. it's a masterpiece of well, it's a masterpiece of um, wheelchair, uh, wheel wheelchair destruction, uh, product <laughs> placement. Yeah, like, shrill marketing. Yeah, really. I do remember that. Really, like, like character design that so misses the mark mm-hmm. that that's it, so terrifying that I used to have nightmares about uh, Mac from Mac and Me. Yeah. Oh man! And I just remember 1985 being a, a very seminal year for me as as a young 
kid getting into films. I remember when I first saw E.T., though, I was, like, so taken aback by how sad it was, and it was, like, affecting me so emotionally that I didn't, like, I didn't get the sense of awe and wonder. I was just so depressed by what was, you know, happening to poor E.T. throughout the movie. And then when Back to the Future came out, I was like, oh, man, this movie just puts me in the best mood possible. And uh, a, a, a filmmaker I, I think would probably be number six on your list, Colin, knowing, knowing you, uh, would probably be Joe Dante, too. Um, sure, yeah. Because, yeah, around that time, he was just, you know, firing on all cylinders. And when, um, you know, when I saw Explorers and then Gremlins, like, those are the movies that really were, like, my gateway into, you know, not just loving movies for entertainment, but being really curious about the process, yeah. too. It's like just how do they how do they put that together right. and you know the, the the effects part of it and you know how did they get two Martys in the same frame or whatever you know just like th- little things like that that just got me more excited about watching movies yeah. as a ki- as a kid. 19, uh, 1985 was a very seminal year for me too because it was two years before I was born so I was literally semen <laughs> still. Yeah, you, so you were uh, still in your daddy's nutsack. Yeah, so it's a very very seminal year for me. Right. Um, completely understand. I believe we have letters. <laughs> we have a couple. Very brief. Um, you know, we'll, we'll dive into the to the very simple question um, p- posed by uh, Jay. Um, just two quick suggestions for you guys. Um, just out of curiosity, would you be uh, cons- would you consider to cover John Singleton, who I think is overrated, and possibly John McNaughton, who I think is underrated. Two Johns, basically, he just threw at us for possible mm-hmm. to be in the running for, for future episodes. Um, I'm not that crazy about John Singleton myself, but I am, I'm a huge is, fan of McNaughton. My question would be, though, when I, when he, when I first read that, is he overrated? Because, I mean, maybe I don't have an accurate I, I, understanding of his critical, like, of, of his stance in the, in, the commun- in the film fan's eyes. But I think, I think people really like Boys, uh, uh, Boys in the Hood, and that's it. That's probably true. Like, I wouldn't even really consider him overrated because I don't think he's really held in that high esteem. Right. No, no I, I totally agree with that. I mean, you know, he, he did, you know, Boys in the Hood and then Poetic Justice and Higher Learning, and he was still, you know, kind of a, a not a critic's darling, but, you know, he was still being taken that seriously. Yeah. And then just it just went off into Shaft and Too Fast, Too Furious. Oh, and, that's right. He did that. You know, Jeez. Four Brothers. Four Brothers, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, I think, I think maybe, uh, he, I think maybe he's well known, mm-hmm. but that's, I think it's only because there's so few working black filmmakers, um, who are telling, you know, black stories and stuff that, that any, anyone who, who consistently does that, whether it's John Singleton or Spike Lee or Tyler Perry, they're going yeah. to be, you know, well known. So I, I am, but I don't think he's necessarily overrated, but I'm not sure how interesting he would be to talk about honestly. I mean, I I remember seeing Higher Learning and and responding to it, but realizing how insanely over melodramatic and heavy handed it was at the time. But I guess the same could be said about Boys in the Hood. But right. Well, brought, I think it brought up relevant issues. And, I think that's you know. sort of the interesting thing about Boys in the Hood is that, especially when you compare it to something like uh, Menace to Society. Oh yeah. Like I feel like Menace to Society does everything Boys in the Hood. <laughs> does like so much better. I think the Hughes brothers would be a lot more interesting to yeah. talk about because they've had a very diverse filmography with like from hell and a couple other things. Uh, dead presidents is pretty good. I, I, I really enjoy dead presidents a lot. Yeah. 
So, um, and, and as, as far as John McNaughton is concerned, I brought this up with a number of my um, uh, uh, friends who are hardcore into film that Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is, I, I saw it when I was like, I don't know, 10 years old, down in the basement, my parents were asleep upstairs, this was on HBO, I don't even know if it was theatrically released yet, but um, I knew it was based on a true story, and as I'm watching it, I'm seeing all the Chicago locales, and, you know, like Lower Wacker Drive, and all these places that are very familiar to me, and watching, you know, Michael Rooker basically just, you know, uh, <laughs> killing whatever he could with his friend Otis. And I, in my mind, I think I built it up because I, I literally tried to st- stay away from it because as a kid, it really scarred me for life. But as time has gone on and I've rewatched it fairly recently, I went, you know what? It's not that horrifying. Um, I mean, just knowing that those things took place, just the way they're executed, I think most of the violence takes place off screen for the most part. Um, I know there's a lot of insanely confrontational stuff involving um, Henry and Otis, but we'll we'll talk. We'll definitely uh, get into his filmography at some point because I think he's an interesting filmmaker because he also did Wild Things, which is a lot of fun. But um, yeah, no, Henry is an interesting movie just from my own personal experience and perspective on how it affected me at a young age and when you grow up and you realize you know what it wasn't that awful. Well, yeah, it's not. It's I think it's more notorious for its tone than than anything. Um, yeah, and that's and that, I think that's also something that um, maybe it's. Uh, I think I think really influential films they uh, they don't age as well because their influence just gets so ingrained and absorbed into the culture. And I think I think the um, nihilistic, um, ultra objective take on murders and people doing horrible things has become like just an indie staple. I've almost become desensitized. <laughs> right. Time. Like so I, I feel like I feel like anyone going back and watching Henry now is gonna especially with the I think what sort of most interested me about it is that the tone and the content mm-hmm. is so I feel contrasts so strongly with the uh with the aesthetic which it makes it almost looks like a TV movie from the eighties. Right. Like it's really low budget and not in a Texas Chainsaw Massacre documentary kind of way. Well, I think the moment, you know, the point of view of the of the camcorder sequence with the home invasion scene <clears throat> stuck, stood out in my mind to where I'm thinking the whole movie, there are murders that are on that level where it's just like so voyeuristic. And it is pretty voyeuristic. And I think, I think that that sequence in particular is pretty. Right. Astonishing. And then they stop it to rewind it to watch yeah. it again. Yeah. I, that's that, that's I think, like their porn. Basically. And it, it, we're talking about Menace to Society. And that's and again, just an example of how quickly after that movie came out, it was. Absorbed. I feel like the scene where they're watching the uh, security footage in Menace Society of yeah. him killing the uh, the mm-hmm. uh, convenience store owner is like a, if not a direct reference to it, then like some kind of homage. Sure, um, sure. And the tone of that movie is completely different, and it's just, but uh, yeah. So and it's, I, and it's hard to watch a movie now with Michael Rooker when you're just like, oh, he's he's definitely the killer. He's, he, well, he's definitely a bad there was, guy. There was no mystery in Henry. <laughs> no, well, I mean, just in general now, it's like I just associate Michael Rooker as as being Henry Yeah, in most movies. But um, no, I, uh, John McNaughton's had, he had a couple of very interesting movies called uh, Mag Dog and Glory with Bill Murray and Robert De Niro sort of playing against type. And uh, a really, uh, probably the only movie that Luke Perry was ever good in. 
uh, normal life with Ashley Judd, which is kind of like a you know a Bonnie and Clyde or a true romance kind of a of a tale. I think that was also like an HBO sort of made for cable movie, but that was a really interesting movie, and of course Wild Things. So he he's definitely um, in consideration. <laughs> I. I'd actually never seen a picture of him. I just pulled up John McNaughton on IMDb. He looks exactly like uh, Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. Oh, my God. <laughs> he has You're the, right. The, he has the big head and the slick back hair. and Wow, that's great. <laughs> uh, Colin, have, ha, ha, I'm assuming you've seen Henry. Yeah, I, I was listening to what you were saying, and I, I would hope that it's true, that, that it doesn't, wouldn't have the same impact on me today as it did then. Uh, I have not seen the movie since it came out on video back in was it eighty nine or yeah, ninety something like I think that ninety one yeah <clears throat> somewhere in there. Um, I watched it at my high school. Um, I was an AV geek, and I had you know I, I had a I had a forty five minute block of time before lunch where I could just hang out in the AV room. So I basically had ninety minutes of free time. I could do whatever I want at high school, and so one day I brought in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and, and watched that and. I for the rest of the afternoon, for the rest of my school day, I just I couldn't talk to anybody. I couldn't look at him. I was in a daze for the rest of the afternoon. Yeah. I just was like, man, I am this that that just messed me up in such a way. I never want to see that movie ever again as long as I live. Even though I admire it and it, 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 admire everything it did, and it really you know took chances and did something really different, and I love it for that. But I never need to experience that again. But I, you know, today, yeah. If I really were to watch it, I'm sure, I'm sure it wouldn't have that effect on me. But uh, I still have no desire to watch it again. I can understand that, but yeah, you basically had the same reaction I had, and yeah. I was, and I was younger and sort of, yeah, you know, I can't more na- being ten years old, more naive. Yeah, I actually, I, I saw it when I was a little older. I think it was like nineteen or something, and I was watching it. I. I'd always thought it was a like a slasher movie or like a horror movie. Mm-hmm. So I was watching it in that context and it just didn't hit me at first. And that was only after I like, saw it again later that I realized that like, oh, this is a very different kind of movie. Well, it was so realistically shot in the fact that like, you know, I knew that this is a true story. Right. And these things have actually happened. And I mean, I don't think they I don't think they took place in Chicago, but just the fact that I knew where everything was, it sort of had another layer of well, I, I, horrificness. I had a. Well, I, I think it's funny because I had a similar reaction to Apocalypse Now when I first saw it, and I think it's it's whenever I see movies that like the movies that affect me the most and disturb me the most aren't necessarily something like Antichrist. Mm-hmm. It's the super nihilistic movies that sort of sort of that are just sort of live in this amoral territory that are just completely black in tone and just and that's and like the ending of Apocalypse Now where they're where. Uh, uh, Marlon Brando's getting killed and they're slaughtering the cow at the same time. Like, literally, I was just wrecked for a week. I would just walk around school not talking to anybody. Yeah. Apocalypse Now is actually my was my dad's favorite movie of all time. And it was very hard for me to sort of objectively watch that with him. And I, I always felt like, you know, Dad, this ending is just so fucked. I just don't get it. I, I, I like the movie, but the way everything sort of wraps up, I don't know. I, I, I wasn't feeling it. So it's something I definitely, definitely want to rewatch. Yeah, I haven't seen it since. I and should rewatch I'm, it. I'm excited to rewatch that again. And that's is, that's Francis Ford Coppola, and like God, I mean, that's that's a guy who's going to need two episodes for sure because um, we could just have an entire episode devoted to the conversation and how brilliant it is. So, well, sorry to go uh, off. Speaking of, of the conversation, <laughs> <laughs> let's have the conversation where we talk about what movies we watched. Mm-hmm. 
I'm watching the movies, baby. What did you watch this week? Was it Rambo or True Grit? Maybe you just watched Dante's Peak. Let's talk about the films. The films that we saw. And when we can't talk anymore, we'll know we saw them all. Yeah. I only have one to talk about. Um, I meant to uh, watch Peter Jackson's Bad Taste, and I could not find the time. So, oh. yeah, I, I that's one of that's uh, I got this uh, fifty chilling classics horror movie pack, mm. and that's one of the movies on there. So I don't know if that's public domain or what, but oh, the girl, one of the girls in my in my classes, she I think she got the exact same one, and she's like. I have a thing for Vincent Price. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a lot like, of Vincent Price movies in there. Not a lot of good Vincent yeah. Price movies, but um, you know, because his, his later, I always like uh, his later Roger Corman stuff, like uh, Mask of Red Death mm-hmm. is no, probably really my favorite. Yeah. Pre- but um, so anyway, the only movie I have to talk about is Scream Four. Um, that which we uh, obviously no need for spoilers in terms of. Right, ending which is unfortunate because most of the movie's really terrible, mm-hmm. but like the last act and the reveal of the killer um and their motivation and uh, the killer parentheses with an s because there's may or may not be multiple killers um and their motivation and sort of a scene that follows it um I was so I was so happy with and I loved so much. Um, that it almost redeemed the movie for me. But it didn't, because it's, it's Scream 4, and it's really bad. Um, I like the Scream series. I have fun with them. Mm-hmm. You're um, one of the few people that likes 3 a lot. I like. I like, I think 3 is much better than 2, actually. Um, I and think I'm, you might be alone on that. I'm not... I've, I've, I've checked. Uh, I've checked. I'm not <laughs> alone, but I'm nearly alone. Looking for that support group online. Yeah. No, there, there's, a, there's a few of us, and uh, we're sad, but we're proud. Um, no, but I, th- well, well, I think it depends on what you like about the Scream movies. Mm-hmm. I never thought that the actual, other than like the first one, and even the first one, it, the uh, the sort of commentary and parody of, of the slasher movies. The meta element. Yeah, it wasn't really as strong as I think people give it credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's entertaining, that's for sure. And it's, that, it's a product of its time, though. Right, I mean, right, right. Was, nobody was really doing that back then. I've, I've actually, I've compared it to Korn's first album, because I know a lot of people hate, <laughs> I know a lot of people hate the Scream series, like really diehard horror fans, because uh, it's sort of every horror movie that came out after that was sort of like a, was something to do with Scream, and it was, you know, even even the Child's Play movies got super referential and everything, and Oh yeah, the and bri- meta. Bride of Chucky and all that. Yeah, Bride yeah. of Chucky. I, I know what you did last summer. Just all sorts of horrible movies. But I feel I compare it to Korn's first album, where it's like, well, the the genre was had sort of stalled, and no one was really doing anything with it, and they just wanted to add some new flavors to it and make it more modern and make it a little more hip and cool, mm-hmm. and it worked. And just because you know it created new metal in the case of Korn, or you know that doesn't that doesn't mean that the uh, that the initial uh, the initial film that inspired it all is bad, but what I like about the movies isn't necessarily the meta element, especially because by the second one, like none of the rules that they come up with make any sense at all. Right. Like none of the rules in Scream Two that they establish in Scream Two, and even less less than none of the rules in Scream Three are are even relevant. <laughs> um, but but I like the whodunit aspect. That's the most fun for me. Um, even though they never give you enough information to properly guess. 
Yeah. They throw out so many red herrings and it's just so much fun. It's the it, that to me is like the meta game of watching the movies. It's it's sort of like I'm sure, you know, it's like trying to watch Clue and trying to make sure, you know, trying to figure out who did what. And of course, in Clue you can't figure out who did what. And that's <laughs> that's why they had multiple endings, but um and it's the same thing where where like the, the the killers are so arbitrary, but it's fun, and I think this is the best sequel, if only because I think that aspect is a lot stronger in this one. Um, I, it's like again, it dropped a lot of balls. Um, Wes Craven doesn't know how to direct tone anymore, which is um, sad. Yeah, like the Scream One's tone is really great, where it's simultaneously kind of scary and funny, and it's able to go back and forth without feeling like it, it's all over the place. Um, my, my soul to take is a fucking travesty. Yeah, well, I mean, tone. cursed, and uh, I've heard Red Eye is all right, but it, no, that's suffice, okay. suffice to say, Wes Craven, if he ever really had it, like none of his movies, I would really call undisputed classics. Even even movies like Nightmare on Elm Street, I'm not, I I think have a lot of flaws. Um, yeah, but you know, he was never on John Carpenter's level or anything like that. Exactly. But, so he's and not great. Unfortunately, John Carpenter is sort of falling. And he says, "There's this horrible thing where there's like a whole bunch of fake outs in the beginning of the movie, um, like you know the cold open. Mm-hmm. There's like three fake outs in a row. So I feel I thought at first I was like, all right. So Kevin Williamson, who he wrote he wrote the first two movies and he wrote this one as well. Um, I'm like, okay, he's telling us not to take this seriously because this is this is like the movie has finally gone up its own s. But then it tries to take it seriously and there's no tension to be derived and there's no, I don't know. It's a bad movie, but again, I enjoyed guessing who the killer is. Um, and the third act, which I can't talk about, um, um, because you know, I don't want to spoil it, but the reveal and a scene that follows that sort of echoes a scene in the first film that I think most people sort of consider the, uh, the, the high point of that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed it, even if it isn't as good as that, similar scene in the first movie and i realized i talked about hannah last time and i also talked cryptically so next next episode i promise the movie i talk about will be a movie that's been around for a million years <laughs> oh you know what else i can talk about hmm. i've been watching a lot of buster keaton shorts lately oh good for you and uh, colin, i haven't seen you, as much colin you said uh that charlie chaplin's one of your favorite directors yeah and you're gonna you're gonna say that buster keaton kicks his ass right no well, i i would except i'm not oh, okay. as familiar with chaplin but i will oh, okay. say i've seen uh city lights i've seen limelight um and i've seen a couple of the i think keystone shorts that's the mm-hmm. studio right yeah N- never has made me laugh once mm. oh wait no when i was like i think when i was nine i saw him do that thing where he dances with the rolls with the forks as his like legs and stuff from, from that, the gold rush yeah okay yeah, oh, yeah. that gold rush um, so that's from Gold Rush, and I thought that was funny, but, like, I've never thought Chaplin was funny, and I, again, it's something I want to revisit, because, in, as in most cases, whenever I, whenever I am contrary to popular opinion, I tend to assume that they're right, and I'm just not seeing it, but, uh, Buster Keaton, ever since the first time I saw him, like, literally everything he does makes me laugh. Um, he's great. He's great. I got nothing against. Buster. Well, no, no, I'm not. I don't. I'm not trying to turn this into Buster versus Charlie. I just. Yeah. Um, that that's an age old argument that goes back to religion versus science. It's yeah. Versus, <laughs> yeah. You know Charlie Chaplin, and nobody ever th- throws Harold Lloyd into the mix. And they yeah, should, poor poor Harold Lloyd. Yeah, Harold Lloyd's really great. I love the Freshman. 
yeah, freshman's great. Oh, yeah. Safety yeah, last. I, I, I showed safety last to my film students uh, over the summer. Uh, just again, going back to visual storytelling. And man, that movie is just like, it was the diehard of its time. You know, it was just like the heights, uh, the, the, the excitement of, of being, you know, just that, watching him climbing that building and all the trick photography in it is just, it's still amazing to watch today. Yeah. And I, so I was going to say, um, they're all, uh, I don't know the exact legal, uh, like a uh, legal position they're in, but most of Buster Keaton's shorts and I'm sure his full movies, you can see in like two or three parts on YouTube. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if, if they're public domain, but if they're taken from a copy that Kino put out, then I don't know what, but anyway, highly recommend, uh, uh, the one, two I watched is neighbors, which is a really uh really funny um movie with a lot of device uh a lot of uh you know device sort of based comedy and and it just gets out of hand so quickly and it's and uh you know one of the things i love about buster keaton is how it can start somewhere um and then by the end of the exact same sequence he's not even worried about the same thing uh like my favorite buster keaton movie is seven chances and there's the part like the climactic scene where he's running from all the brides and then by the end like the brides have stopped chasing him but now there are boulders falling towards him and he's running (laughs) away from the boulders like i just start dying because it's it's like how did we get here how did this get so out of hand so quickly i think neighbors is a great example of that and the scare the scarecrow is another one a lot of gadgets and a lot of um you know, a lot of he loves he loves devices. You know, movies, uh, episode, uh, yeah, short films he did like that or the Electric House. Hmm. Um, you know, he loves coming up with little contraptions and gags and stuff. I feel like it's good he came out when he did because if he came out if he if he grew up in like the eighties, he would have been a prop comic. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he could have easily you know just just born you know born sixty years later, he would have ended up being a prop comic or something. Um, but. And it just and he there's something about him I just find so funny every every expression he makes every everything he does with his face is just hysterical. So anyway, I just really forgot to get that discuss those. Yeah, and make sure people do make sure you don't confuse uh, Buster Keaton's neighbors with the uh, uh, J- uh, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd film of the same name. Right, you will be thoroughly thoroughly upset, mm-hmm. especially by the score in that movie. Yeah, oh, God. <laughs> well, actually, what I do when I watch uh, the that neighbors is I just turn off the sound and I adjust my TV so it's black and white, and then I hit fast forward and I pretend that it's Buster Keaton's neighbors. <laughs> it's pretty crazy that the, the guy who did Rocky and Karate Kid did Neighbors. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I just find that really bizarre. I mean, I actually don't know what other movies John G. Avildsen has done other than those three, but uh, yeah, Neighbors was a pretty big monumental disaster despite the ambition of like well let's try reversing you know type let's have them play against type these you know these two guys will have Ackroyd be the obnoxious one and Belushi be the straight man and it was just no good just no good at all there's so many better movies you know like like the burbs <laughs> that would tackle similar territory I guess um transitioning really quickly because I didn't see that very I didn't see that much this week myself um, since you were talking about Scream 4 yes and um, uh, the Film Junk podcast was um, talking a little bit about the Scream trilogy in of itself and then they brought up New Nightmare and I really uh, wanted to revisit it for, for quite a while now and actually I think the last time I saw it was with you Colin at uh, the, the Pickwick or was it? The, oh yeah 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 that's yeah. right 
Yeah, and it was. I, th- I think it was part of the flashback weekend, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was and, one of those things. Yeah, and it w- it was a good time, and I, I I enjoyed the movie, but not nearly as much um, upon subsequent viewings because what it comes down to is like the acting in that movie is awful, especially by the kid. Um, and I, I, I genuinely dislike the climax of the movie. I don't know. It just, it becomes so bland and kind of what you would expect from a Freddy movie. Whereas most of the things that come before it, I think is sort of like a clever evocation of the audience's expectations, you know, of like, well, this is what a horror movie should deliver. And I'm going to comment on that as it's taking place. And they're really like the ideas in the movie are really great. I love the idea of that I, movie. I do, I, I, but it's really clumsy in parts, especially when like you know Wes Craven himself appears and they're reading lines from the script, and or that part where you know Robert England himself is painting Freddy, and they're, they're yep. having a, a really horrible phone people, conversation. People always attribute uh, you know Spielberg and Hitchcock as influences on uh, Shyamalan's work. But they forget Wes Craven. <laughs> Wes Craven's <laughs> role in New Nightmare is identical to like Shyamalan's uh, M Night Shyamalan's role in uh, Lady in the Water. He did that. Ooh. Oh well, what I do is what I do is I tell stories so I can save the world. Like he cast himself as the savior of humanity. Yeah, the only way to save the world is by you got to play Nancy one last time, right? <laughs> and like that whole stuff of, with, with Robert England saying, "Oh man, y- you know what's weird is that." Uh, Wes, Cra- Wes Craven called me up and told me about your son reaching towards God. <laughs> and it's just like, it's so weird you know and I think, awkward. But... Do you, Colin, do you like uh, New Nightmare? Uh, like Jim said, I liked it a lot when we saw it that one time uh, at the Pickwick. It's, it was good at the, with and, an audience, yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it since. Oh, um, I'm sure it's one of those movies that probably doesn't age well. And again, it goes back to the whole thing of, uh, you know, it... You know, it was it was a new thing of its time, and you know, maybe not influential, but there have been a lot of movies like it since. So maybe that's why you know that that would probably be why it wouldn't hold up well. That's true. I don't know. It, I, it did I, come I, out, I, I believe, three years before Scream. Yeah, it's like ninety three or ninety. I'm looking ninety four. Ninety four. Yeah, ninety four. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you know, I'd, I'd have to look at it again, but I remember uh, remember liking it a lot last time I saw it um, because. I had forgotten, you know, how, you know, that that Wes Craven had made a movie like that before Scream. Uh, that was the kind of self-referential and, uh, you know, it, so it seemed pretty innovative to me at the, the you know, like the last time I saw I, it. So. I, I definitely love the idea of the movie. I think the mate and there's really interesting ideas about how Freddy has like became, you know, this pop culture hero Icon. when he's a yeah. child molester murderer. Like... <laughs> You know, like, like like Jason doesn't even have a personality, so... I like the idea that he's trying to explore the mythology and why it developed and, you know, how this happens and comparing Freddy Krueger to, you know, King Kong or whatever and, you know, sort of portraying him as a larger-than-life figure that, you know, every kid knows who he is, just like Santa Claus and how does that happen. It, but just... it gets really bogged down towards the end and especially by some of the, you know, the trickery with with the kid... And like you know, the phone kept keeps ringing, and Freddy's calling, and it's. I, I remember being more scared by it the first time I saw it, and now I was just laughing through the majority of it. So it, I think it holds up as entertainment, but um, 
it's in some parts you're you're definitely laughing at how bad it is. See, I mean, I night, the Nightmare on Elm Street series is my probably my favorite horror series, but I I didn't find and compared to most of them, I didn't find it entertaining at all. Because well, that, that's because there's not a lot of nightmare cool nightmare sequences. Well, here's the thing that those are fun. I, here's the major ball I think they dropped is they 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 set up okay. There is movie Freddy, but he is just a symbol of an actual demon that lives. You know, and that, you know, that people need to attend horror movies and they need to get it out and all that. And it's, you know, really interesting ideas and stuff. But when we see the actual demon, it's just Freddy, except his makeup's a little different. And instead of a glove, he has, like, knives coming out of his bones. Actual, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's still played by Robert England. And I feel like the concept of a demon or of some kind of evil force that lives in nightmares that... Like, there's so many other directions that you could go with that to contrast with the actual Freddy, and instead he just made kind of a dull Nightmare on Elm Street movie that happens to be self-referential. Yeah, I I can definitely see that. It's like, I like the idea of an actual horror movie sort of trying to delve into the cathartic element of watching a horror movie. Exactly, and there's there's sort of interesting ideas of who owns the character, Cause, you know, once the character is taken by the public's imagination, you know, it takes on a life of its own. And it's that sort of idea. There's that actually wonderful slow motion shot when they're on the talk show and Freddie comes out yes. and all the people. Uh, and it's like and it's like such an amazing contrast. And it's um, but it's just the movie itself just does not work. I don't think they should have had Heather Langenkamp in the in the lead at all. I mean, she she's serviceable, obviously, in in Nightmare on Elm Street one and three, but she's not a strong actress enough to be. I don't even convincing. I didn't even think she was really that good in Nightmare on Elm Street. 3. I think she's fine for what the role calls for in terms yeah, of being a true. scream queen type of performance, you know. Um, but overall, it's it, it it's still good. I, I'm not going to say it's like, you know, but it's definitely gone down in in my mind especially in in cuz i think scream is a far superior movie in terms of entertainment and yeah and just the meta element mm-hmm. itself i think it's a lot more fun in scream so and then the only other thing i saw really quickly since Colin or um patrick you described it at at length last time was hannah and i think this is probably in, um it's, it's it's right up there with rango in 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 terms of uh, favorite movies of the year so far, I I was thoroughly entertained by this movie. It's a great action set piece, and you know there's not a lot to it. It's a it's a basically a, a chase movie, and you know I I liked how simple it was and how tight it was, but for the most part, I was pretty much just you know uh, marveling at a lot of the uh, cinematography and 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 choices of. Uh, of where he put the camera or just just interesting little camera tricks that that this director did and and Joe Wright is sort of becoming the um master of the one take shot without really calling attention to it and I know I know that you know like uh, his earlier work was uh, a lot more subdued and um I I I liked Atonement didn't love it I really liked Pride and Prejudice but not necessarily for what he did cinematically with it um but I think he's really coming to his own uh, as a, as a visual storyteller with this movie, and uh, doing a lot of fun things to sort of add to the genre, uh, you know, to to an action movie. Where I'm not saying he's going to be up there with like a Paul Greengrass in the future, but uh, 
I, I certainly admire his directorial approach to this kind of movie. I admired that there were action scenes where I could actually see what was happening. Yeah, that was that was such a pleasant surprise in 2011. And I felt like <laughs> to, yeah, and I felt to like actually was, get to watch the action. And I felt like well, there were actual consequences to what was taking place, and I you know I was I, I felt for the characters. I mean. I'm not sure how I felt about the reveal in of itself. I didn't get really emotionally wrapped up to where I was like, oh, poor girl, <laughs> you know, but, and I wouldn't give away what that is, but at the same time, um, it was more of just the experience of watching this. And um, <laughs> it's very rare that this happens nowadays, but I, I did see this completely alone in the theater. And I was like, man, this probably would have been fun with an audience sort of cheering on, you know, what was taking place. But, I, I had an amazing time with this movie, and I don't know. I, I like these. I, I know you weren't too crazy about the score, and I can co- completely respect that, but I'm I'm a big fan of these you know, alternative musicians sort of having a second life with, the, with these scores because I think they're very energetic and add an interesting element to the movies rather than it just being all orchestrated stuff. I, th- I, th- I, I, I don't know. I like... I especially like the social network for the same reason that uh, what the Chemical Brothers brought to this, even if it had some run, Lola run kind of moments. Didn't bother me. You know, so I, I don't know. I think this is almost as, as perfect of a movie that's out there right now. So what would you think of Hannah, Colin? I know you were. I liked it. I liked yeah. it a lot. Yeah. yeah, it's fun. Good stuff. Good stuff. Looking forward to seeing what he does next, and hopefully it won't be another soloist. So. Yeah, I'm always interested in what this guy does, just base, basically because of his uh, his visual choices. I actually think Pride and Prejudice, what he did with that cinematically, was pretty brilliant, and actually was the thing that you know made me like it as much as I did. I'll re- I'll, de- uh, I'll definitely rewatch it, especially in hindsight. With you know, yeah, it's a gorgeous movie to look at. I and, remember and it again was, yeah. doing some of those really you know tricky one take shots. Uh, they're they're pretty thrilling to watch, and it's a funny movie too. Actually, I mm-hmm. think that's I think, I think Pride and Prejudice is still his best movie. Um, Atonement was a great visual movie. I just I just hate the last act of that movie. I, hate, I completely I hate agree. Ending. I completely agree with that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, and but this one's a lot of fun. Hannah's a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. So what have you seen, Colin, um, lately that you'd like to bring um, up? Yeah, you know, uh, I hate you know hate to repeat myself or repeat the show, but I you know went back and watched a Chaplin movie this week. Oddly enough, um, oh, go for it! No, that's cool. Which I haven't done in a while, but uh, one of the kids in my movie that I'm working on is you know he's kind of a student of comedy. He's 11 years old, but he like worships Saturday Night Live and he worships you know just all aspects of comedy. And I'm trying to give him a you know an education on that. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm getting him for, you know, his, his birthday or his payment for being in the movie, uh, <laughs> cause you gotta pay your actors. Oh, you know? of course. Um, but his parents don't want me to pay him money. So I'm like, all right, give him some DVDs then. And so I got him the great dictator or I'm getting him the great dictator it comes out on criterion in, uh, next month. Um, so I went back and watched it. I was like, what, what, what did I just buy this kid? You know, I just, <laughs> I should probably watch it, you know, um, and, you know, and I just remember, you know, kind of sitting there thinking, man, I hope he likes this. Because, you know, the, what I want him to take from this is like, you know, 
if you're if you're if you're looking for something to you know make fun of or write about or you know you know if you're looking for an, uh, a a inspiration for a, a comedy sketch or something or a movie or a screenplay or whatever you know just do what Chaplin did you know just kind of look at the headlines see what pisses you off and make something funny out of that um, which is you know basically what the great dictator is and of course he got you know in a heap of trouble for making that film. And that's kind of what I, the lesson I want to give to this kid is like, you know, this is that, that's that's a great way to approach comedy is just, you know, start with something that pisses you off and go from there. Um, hmm. And I still think Greg Dictator is hilarious. I, I still just marvel at Chaplin's performance, the choice that he made uh, this to be his first film in which he speaks Um and what comes out of his mouth is total gibberish, you know, this German gibberish, uh, you know, as as the dictator Adenoid Hinkle. Um, and it is just it's so much fun to watch. And, you know, you could criticize the, the final moment of the movie to death. And, you know, there's plenty of room for that uh, in which Chaplin just basically just almost breaks character, looks right at the audience and makes this speech about humanity and, you know, Ooh. where it's gotten us <laughs> or where it's gotten them at the time. And, you know, in, during World War II, um, at the time, you know, it was probably, you know, very potent and, you know, a, I mean, it, obviously it was a very gutsy thing to do, especially, you know, in a two hour comedy, mm-hmm. uh, and you watch it today and it's like you 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 couldn't get away with that today you just couldn't it it would just it would ruin any any movie that tried to do that um but there's something about it when you watch it today it's just fascinating to see that you, there was a time where you could get away with something like that yeah i could see uh, it like a, a little parallel maybe with uh four lions you know what they did with uh with terrorism right. yeah um, but I mean, nobody in Four Lions, you know, looked at the audience right. and gave a speech. You know, True. that's the thing is like that. That that's that's probably the ballsiest move uh, mm-hmm. in 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 the movie The Great Dictator. Um, even more so than than you know making fun of Hitler, which was a pretty ballsy move in and of itself at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, uh, I I you know i hope i made the right choice in getting this kid this movie i hope he loves it um he's pretty smart so i think he will um so that that's what i went back and watched it this week that's cool anything theatrically that's uh, stood out as uh late? no I mean, yeah because i know I this, mean, week, I this weekend was horrendous uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the thing about most movies that are coming out in theaters today it's like i see them and then i have nothing to say about them cuz they're just Inert, they're you know, Medea, um, huh? <laughs> Medea, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just like I, I don't have time, I, I don't have time to see a lot of these movies, let alone talk about them, you know. It's like I like the Morgan Spurlock documentary, but I got nothing to say about it, you know. Right. It's fine, it's funny, it, it, it's him doing his thing. That's what I saw in the theater this week that you know, I liked. Um, I saw Water for Elephants. Hey, you know, I got nothing. It's 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 a pretty, it's <laughs> That's, just a dry, dull kind of movie, and it's too bad because it's come. It comes from a lot of talented people. Well, let me um, let's let's frame it this way. What what movie do you think is let's not say better because you know better whatever. Let's say more successful. Water for elephants or Hotel for Dogs. <laughs> Like water for chocolate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you got it. 
That was that was the correct trick answer. I was disappointed go. to see that Lagravenes La did waterfowl elements for elephants. Well, I mean, no, I, I mean, I wouldn't be. I'm not surprised that he took on ad, adapting a, a story like that or a book like that because that's what he, you know, he he does right. that. You know, mm-hmm. He did Bridges Madison County, and he, he's done a lot of great screenplays from mediocre to awful books, yeah. uh, and he's done a lot of great original screenplays of his own. I mean, he is one of Hollywood's best screenwriters. There's no question about it. Absolutely. Um, but he got saddled with you know a dull storyline, and you know uh, I'm sure he you know he did the best he could with what he had in that storyline um but it just and the actors couldn't really bring it to life you know reese witherspoon christoph waltz none of them could really you know make this thing shine in any way and the director couldn't either director's name escapes me at the moment um francis lawrence yeah uh there's there's a lot of beautiful cinematography in it i mean it's a it's a very pretty movie to look at it's a lot of great magic hour shots you know sunsets and everything um, but it just sits there like a dead elephant. That's pretty, mm. pretty much what it is. And really briefly, since you are a, a, a documentary filmmaker, um, and you know, contributed and made some great films. I know you're a, a huge fan of documentaries and, uh, have, has there been a couple as of late? I mean, the only other one I've, I've seen recently would be, uh, the Tillman story. And I know you were a huge fan of that one from last year. Um, Anything that comes to mind uh, from this year? Uh, uh, yeah. I really liked the William S. Burroughs documentary. I think oh. it's I think it's William S. Burroughs, A Man Within, something. Hmm. I think that's the name of it. It's on DVD. You can get it. Uh, it. It's terrific. You should definitely check it out, especially after seeing Naked Lunch a few uh, right. a, a month or two ago. Um, revisiting that movie and then seeing the Burroughs documentary after that. Uh, definitely worth worth checking out uh, if you want to learn more about about what a what a great writer he was and, and what a strange and interesting man he was. Uh, so I like that one a lot. Cool. All right, I'll I'll definitely have to look into that because I'm I'm a big fan of of William Burroughs and I'd like to. I think. Well, no, that was I was thinking of uh, Charles Bukowski for some reason. That's the only other one I've seen recently. I think Sean Penn did the narrating for that. That was a while ago though. All right. Um, that would probably do it for what we watched this week, correct? Yeah? Yeah. Very good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, then we're just going to have to launch into our director of the episode, Mr. David Gordon Green. David Gordon Green, coming of age, southern tales, lyrical camera work. Shot by Tim Moore, improvisation, influenced by Malik with frequently poetic narration this time that we talk about the director let's talk about how much we love the director David Gordon Green was born in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1975 and raised in Richardson, Texas with his three siblings. He attended the South Carolina School of Arts for film directing. His films are mostly coming-of-age tales set in small rural towns, heavily influenced by fellow Texas filmmaker Terrence Malick. His first film, and the first film we'll be discussing, is George Washington, a perfect example of that. George Washington is a lyrical and touching story about four impoverished children coming of age in a post-industrial southern town. 
How's that? Very good. good. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, no. So I wanted to talk about George Washington. Um, by far, uh, I watched um, in preparation. I'd only seen uh, Pineapple Express and all the real girls. So in in preparation, uh, I had got. I managed to see all of David Gorgreen's movies except for Snow Angels. Um, I have to say, George Washington is by far my favorite. Um, I I think it had me like even if you even if without the themes and the performances and the story, um, there's something I find really, really captivating about that sort of post-industrial uh, milieu that it, that it works in. And it's even before I, uh, I read, a, read, read more about it, I sort of assumed it was inspired by uh, Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep, um, which is a really great movie, I believe from the late 70s, might be early 80s, um, that tackles the same thing about um, sort of growing up really poor and um and where there's just like weeds and the wilderness sort of rec- reclaiming everything and the sort of just everything looking rusted um and uh, and just sort of having to fill your days with mm-hmm. you know you don't have any toys you don't have any games you have to sort of make up your own games and uh it's that's something i find like just really interesting and i really love watching so even before we got to the story and the themes which i thought were really great um this movie really had me um, just from the way it was shot and from the look of it. Um, and the fact that it takes a non-narrative approach and it's, you know, basically a series of sequences. And I know he sort of shot it in a very haphazard way in that um, in case some of the footage got misplaced or, 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 or I know that he originally wanted this movie to be a lot longer and he had a, a sort of different initial vision for it and what was that and as it sort of went well he he wanted to definitely you know pay homage to like you said terrence malick and sort of have it have this dreamy lyrical quality to it Mm -hmm. and he sort of wanted to give um more of of an arc to the character and you know he he does that in, in in a way here but it's more you know put together in a way that's not very movie like it's and you know and, and the same approach kind of goes for all the real girls and you know he he, he it's like he always ta- he takes the moments in life that would probably be left on the cutting room floor in, in a lot of other movies well, yeah I, I find that really interesting that he puts yeah. sort of the awkward moments and you know places them in such a, 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 a you know thoroughly dimensional world that feels you know both you know, claustrophobic to the characters, but also fully realizing that it's 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 his own world, uh, and it's probably because you know he's filming in in these industrial remote places that he's familiar with, and that sort of comes through with with his earlier films. Especially. I want yeah, I want to I guess um, you know if you can probably guess if you haven't seen this by now that it isn't exactly a very um, very strong narrative. Um, in this movie, and it, so it, it can be a little hard trying to set up what this movie is actually like, but it's basically about um, four kids. Um, the main character is George, um, uh, played by uh, Donald Holden. I wrote down all the character names and actors this time. Uh, uh, George, George is a very intelligent but quiet um, um, black boy uh, who uh, his skull is not fully fused together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a result, he can't go underwater, and he's very sort of fragile. He has to wear a helmet everywhere. Um, he's friends with Vern, who's a very big guy. He's a lot more talkative, a lot more confident. Um, I believe a little older, mm-hmm. though I don't think the exact ages are ever given. No. Um, 
then there's Buddy uh, with the glasses, um, uh, and he's uh, he's a more sensitive. He uh, he it, the begin the movie opens with him breaking up uh, with his uh, for him longtime girlfriend because it's because they're they're essentially twelve, uh, you know, eleven like sixth graders. So he's he breaks up with uh, nausea, um, and uh, it's. And it's sort of he's he's heartbroken by that, and um, Vern looks out for him, and Nausea sort of uh, is wants to be with George, and but again, the narrative isn't really the, the strong thing here. It's more these sort of uh, ideas and themes of, um, you know, uh, this sort of coming of age where it's like the last possible moment you can still be a kid, um, and you know they're sort of beginning to realize that already, um, and then there's a sort of a tragedy in the middle of the movie that sort of forces right. them um, it's, it's into a, it's that. It's another portrayal of like the loss of innocence and not just how it affects these characters, but how it affects the town. Um, I mean, it, it, it centrally focuses on the characters and how they sort of deal with the consequences, but you know, it, it's more about mood than storytelling. Absolutely. And that's what I love about yeah, and David it's, Gordon Green. And like, like a, like a Malick movie, there's a lot of, um, very, uh, very colorful narration that mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily correspond to what you're seeing or even correspond necessarily to the movie. It's very um, poetic and kind of purple, very much like uh, bad, uh, Badlands or um, Days of Heaven. Um, and uh, one of the things that struck me most about this movie, um, sort of if I had to pick one theme that sort of tied everything together, it's uh, how delicate everyone is. Um, and how much people need each other. There's uh, Paul Paul Schneider, who's in a lot of uh, David Gordon Green's movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he's the lead in the next movie we're going to talk about. All the real girls. Um, he plays uh, someone who works for. He's a railroad foreman, I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right, and uh, he has a very sort of touching relationship um, with Bu- uh, Buddy, the uh, the uh, the kid in the glasses, and they have they have long conversations. Um, as, as if equals, cause it's, and even though, even though, you know, one's an adult and one's a 12 year old, they're sort of on the same level emotionally. Um, and there's just this feeling of, of being fragile and sort of, and again, if they live in this sort of post-industrial town where, um, the, uh, oh, hold on, Paul Schneider's character's name is Rico and Rico, like he works for a union and the union is suffering and. You know, there's there's scenes of him driving around trying to get people to come out to vote for the union, and like you know, these all people who don't want to because they're out of work, and, and they live in this you know they this this town that is you know the, that sort of feels left behind, and as a result, I feel all the characters are left behind, and uh, you know, even characters that are initially almost set up as antagonists. Um, such the, the town feels like an extension of their identity, and it's weird oh absolutely, because, and it's weird because it's like you know. Like a lot of industrial towns, they're becoming ghost towns, and it's 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 really sad because people lose their place in the world, and they don't feel yeah, like they the, can get out of it. Yeah, the kids wander through like abandoned lots, and just yeah. you know, with there are you know uh, rusting cars in the fields, and just things like that, and uh, even like even characters uh, that sort of initially set up. I was going to say like uh, antagonists, like uh, Eddie Rouse's um, the uh, the uncle of um, George's. Eddie, uh, Eddie, uh, sorry, Eddie Rouse, who plays Damascus, he's a very stern and angry person who kills animals and is sort of a little unhinged. And even he has this really touching moment with George where he realize, like, where he lets, yeah. 
you know, he, he reveals his vulnerability and why he, you know, was so hurt and why he doesn't like animals. And, and it's just, everyone sort of needs each other. Um, cause they're all just very fragile and. Yeah. There's a real sense of camaraderie amongst the characters, even when they, you know, are clearly, you know, st- uh, crossing boundaries or, or, or engaging in acts that, uh, you know, have serious consequences. Um, so, Colin, what are your thoughts on, the, on this? <laughs> yeah, film? you've been no, a little quiet. No, no feel, feel free to interject at any time. Yeah, I know. We ramble. Tell us to shut up. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, the whole podcast thing is a little new to me. Oh, so, sure. Um, yeah, that's okay. But, uh, no, I think everything you guys are saying is, is dead-on accurate. I wish the movie was more fresh in my mind right now. The next movie we talk about definitely is. Um, but I just I, what I find fascinating about this movie, I mean, many things when I'm watching it, but... Just backtrack, I mean, to when it came out. I mean, you know, 2000, uh, David Gordon Green, probably 24 years old when he made it, something like that. Um, I mean, and already just develop, just demonstrating a wisdom that is way beyond his years. I mean, uh, you know, a, a kid out of film school at the age of 24 typically, you know, wants to make some kind of genre film or, you know, Tarantino or Kevin Smith type thing. Um, but to jump into something like this at such a young age and, you know, cite Terrence Malick and Robert Altman as an influence and actually, you know, uh, you know, show that in your work, uh, it, it he, you know, he, he risks pretentiousness so often in his work and I feel never comes close to it. Um, and this is a movie that, uh, you know, I mean... It shows a tremendous amount of sophistication on his part, especially, I mean, when you look, even even in the credits, he, he doesn't put himself, he doesn't give his own himself his own title card. He shares the title, you know, the screen with his cinematographer, Tim Orr, and this is a cinematographer's movie. I mean, oh this my is God, what yes. you mm-hmm. have to go back and, and look at. Uh, now, I, I wanted to ask you guys about that. See, George Washington is in the Criterion Collection, um, yeah. so... And I think of all the movies that I saw of his, including all the real girls and Undertow, like it was by far the most beautiful. And I was going to ask, do you think that's because just it has a really good transfer or do you think like the cinematography is especially great in George Washington? Because I mean, all, I think all of his movies are really good, have re- are really just brilliant visually. But yeah, I, you know, I, if I had seen it in the theater, I'd have a, I'd have a better answer for that. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't. I actually saw. I didn't see George Washington until after I saw all the real girls. Yeah, same here. Um, so it's hard for me to say. But I, you know, I like to think that, you know, uh, that it is really shot that well. It's not just a great transfer from Criterion, although I'm sure that helps too. Um, and <clears throat> I mean, the, you know, the comparisons to Terrence Malick are inevitable. But I think he's a, a step above Terrence Malick because I think, as much as I love Malick's movies. I'm never really uh, engaged with the characters in them. I'm more in, into the philosophy and the style of them and just sort of being swept up in, you know, the poetic beauty of them more than I'm, you know, uh, the, more than I actually feel like I'm on a journey with a character. Whereas I, with Green's films, I do feel like I'm on a journey with the character I, or characters in them. I think that's a really interesting point because this is a movie that is – you know, it's not just about the characters and it's not even just about the emotion. It really is about larger themes. And even if it's mostly on a subtextual level, it really is sort of about America and about 
um, sort of the eternal optimism. The uh, the character of George, despite you know being extremely poor and not having any parents and having this you know this uh, the, the, this uh, this you know skull that is infused all the way and being really fragile and everything, he wants to be a superhero and he wants to you know there's the the event I think well we it's again it's over two years old and I think it's kind of important to talk about. Yeah, definitely. We can. All right. So, just if you don't want to be spoiled by George Washington, go ahead and skip ahead fifteen minutes. Um, but um, what happens is they're they're all in the. In a, I believe it's abandoned. It might just be closed at the time, but I feel abandoned would better fit sort of the, the rest of the themes of the movie. Uh, it looks like in a like in a go go uh, go kart track or a mini golf track or something like that, and uh, they're in the bathroom and they're playing around and they're pushing and shoving and stuff and. Uh, George gets pushed into the wall and he hits the back of his head, which is wearing the helmet on the wall mm-hmm. and he gets mad. So he, he shoves buddy who pushed him back hard and buddy slips on the water and slams his head into this, um, into the ground, um, starts bleeding out of his nose, starts, I believe having a seizure. Um, yeah. He starts hitting the, the one of the bathrooms. Yeah. Stalls. He starts, he starts babbling incoherently yeah. and, um, and he has a seizure and he starts hitting the, walls and he dies and they uh, there's a there's a very long time they spend with the dead body not not in the movie but the characters spend a long time with the dead body trying to figure out what to do and all the reactions are different uh i believe uh, george just shuts down the the girl they're with who i actually didn't even talk about sonia um played by rachel handy she she shuts down and then uh Vern gets very anxious and is want you know is is pacing and wondering what are we going to do what are we going to do and they eventually they they decide to hide his body mm-hmm. um you know in in an abandoned building with some leaves and again the fact that there are places in the city where they can comfortably hide a dead body that won't be found for several months is you know is again a statement on sort of where the town is and there's a lot of you know sort of things like that where they don't you know, there's there's no there's no scenes where the mom's like, I don't know how I'm going to afford food. You know, it's not a it's not a, dr- a heavy handed drama, but there's a lot of that subtext. Um, so and uh, at this point, it changes everyone where they were just kids. And now in dealing with this sort of horrific accident um, and the guilt involved and everything, they all sort of respond in different ways. And George becomes obsessed with being a superhero. And it's, and it, you know, he's. He's very, uh, it, it, he, it's partially denial and it's partially just wanting to, it's partially guilt, wanting to make up for what he's done. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's partially just, you know, sort of blind optimism. I think sort of all three things are kind of very defining American traits. Yeah, uh, he wants to become a superhero. <laughs> right. Um, and there's, there's a really great, hold on, I have it written down here. There's a really great speech at the end. Um, this really great speech at the end uh, where he's being interviewed because at one point he saves a boy from drowning in a pool, um, despite the fact that going inside the pool makes his head swell up, you know, and puts him in danger. And he, so he's being interviewed by the newspaper, um, and uh, the newspaper asks him who his heroes are, and he lists a bunch of heroes, and <laughs> it's a fantastic list. His the hero he people who he considers heroes are the man who invented the steam shovel, Chubby Checker. The Untouchables, Dick Allen, The Great Wall of China, <laughs> not the person who made The Great Wall of China, but The Great Wall of China, Uncle that. Sam, and the President of the United States of America. And it's and it's this sort of, 
um, unfocused, just thing he wants, you know, grasping to be more and to be important, like the Great Wall of China. Not, you know, it's, you know, it's not about someone who, you know, he's a singer, so he wants, so he looks at all the great singers. He's not, it's, he just, he doesn't know how he's going to be great. But he knows he needs to be great. And it's like a clumsy, childlike interpretation of the American dream. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's, and that, I think that's very much the point. And I think it's, mm-hmm. you know, on some levels, it's sort of an allegory for that. It's, um, so I believe that, but anyway, this is, I got really long-winded. I apologize. Your, the original point was you said that he never feels pretentious and you never don't care for the characters. And I think that's one of the most astounding things about George Washington is that it is all of the, these things, and it's very lyrical and the shot dreamlike, and it's not a strict narrative, and it's got this you know strange poetic narr- uh, voiceover and everything. But never at any point do you feel like, oh well, what I'm watching is an academic exercise. Right. Like you, it, could, it, it it could have easily felt like a student film. Yes. Strangely enough, never does. Yeah. Although I mean, he made he he you know did a version of this movie. Uh, in film school, so you know he, he practiced it already before he made it, but uh, you know it's but it it definitely doesn't come off that way. So yeah, it's an astounding. It's an, it's just an, an astoundingly uh, fully formed kind of film. Um, there's one other one other scene I really want to talk about that. Uh, it's a scene where Vern again is uh, he's very upset. Um, that, you know, that, that buddy is dead and he just doesn't know how to handle it. He doesn't, you know, George has sort of retreated, um, into his superhero fantasies and Sonya has sort of just shut down emotionally, but Vern is having trouble, um, with his abilities. And one day Sonya finds him in the same bathroom and he goes into this incredible monologue that like, literally it really did move me to tears where he he's just listing all these things he wishes. He wants to be away. He wants to escape. He goes, I wish I he goes, I wish there were two hundred of me. I wish I had my own tropical island. I wish I had my own planet. I wish I could get saved and give my life to Christ. Then maybe he'll forgive me for what I did. Uh like he lists a thousand things that he wishes for and it seems just like you know, like so many of them are unconnected, but it's just this sort of incredible monologue delivered and i believe these are all not non-actors but sort of unprofessional actors i think they are non-actors i think he went out of his way to find those you know those kids and to it's this sort of portray these characters and it's this incredibly moving dialogue of where he, he just captures all of or this monologue where he just captures all of the pain and the regret and and the flight or fight you know fight or flight response and just everything you know all into one panicked uh, monologue where he's just sitting on the floor and he's just talking about all the things he wishes he was rather instead of where he is right now. Um, that was probably the high point of the movie for me. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. I mean, the the, the more delicate moments too really stand out. And, I, th- you know, it's so it's, it's a difficult movie to discuss because of my emotional reaction to it, a lot like what we're going to talk about later. Um, but obviously the thematically, you know, just uh, thinking about um, you know, I, I, some towns I've either visited and, you know, known friends who live in these towns, uh, like there's this, this incredibly, I mean, it's basically that this town was run by the fact that it had this working factory and now it's shut down, uh, this town in, in Denora, Pennsylvania, where I would be, um, you know, walking the streets there or just taking pictures and whatnot. And I, I'd be seeing these characters almost in, in, in the ways they would interact and, 
you know, they, they were of different ethnicities, but they were all sort of, they had to find a sense of community with where, where they were, even if they were overrun by poverty or, you know, uh, the, the fact that this town's been forgotten or whatever. And sort of seeing that reflected in this movie brings up a lot of, of, uh, of personal feelings for not just the characters, not just the movie, but the idea of a town losing itself, of a town sort of like struggling to find, you know, th- their place in the world or, you know, th- they're desperately like they cling to this idea that this factory is saving us. It's giving us jobs. It's doing all this. What happens when that closes down? Where do they go? What, what happens when the do? union is dying? And, and they, Yeah. Exactly, and they're just sitting on railroad tracks drinking beer, talking about fireworks and how excited they are about the fireworks. And that's that's something that I think a lot of people can identify with, even though in the movie of itself it's very, you know, uh, it's not structured like a movie. It doesn't have the payoff that most people would hope for. But it's it's a very hopeful movie, even if, you know, it takes a very dark turn. Um, I don't know. I, it, it's a, It's an overwhelming experience to watch this movie, uh, much like... A couple of others, his films as well, and it's uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, I believe things that sort of uh, it's a very rich movie, and it's a movie I want to watch again because I just kept noticing things that would pop up again. Where mm-hmm. um, Paul Schneider's character gave uh, gave Buddy a noogie, and then someone else <laughs> gave I believe Vern a noogie, or Vern gave someone a noogie, and then there's a lot of imagery with water. There's in one of the several uh, sort of lyrical shots that sort of don't have any place within the actual story. There's way early on, there's a, this incredibly beautiful slow motion shot of George throwing open a suitcase and water spraying out of it. And it's, and it, and it's just one of those things that you feel. And there's all sorts of amazing images like that, where that just sort of so perfectly sum things up like, uh, like Sonia, when they're in the abandoned amusement park, she finds a bunch of sh- like she finds some dog shit or whatever on the ground, and she begins painting on the wall like with a stick and the shit. And it's like that's that sums up everything right there. You know, you, mm-hmm. you you're given shit and you try to do something with it, even if yeah. everyone else is going like, "Why are you playing with the shit?" It's <laughs> what else am I gonna do? <laughs> yeah, he finds this sort of uh, strange uh, offsetting balance between like. Uh, you know, like a fairy tale with you know with, with the way some of the dialogue is spoken and the non sequitur, yes. and but at the same time, creates this sort of mythic Americana landscape yeah. where people sort of, you know, they identify themselves with this landscape to where they they feel a sense of home with 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 you know who they interact with. And I mean that's that's where just where he comes from, and you know, just shines so so much through because never once feels like an outsider's perspective and never feel once it's like wallowing in their pity or anything Mm -hmm. like that, that, you know, so many of these kinds of movies can sometimes be about when they're about, you know, people who are in poverty, um, but never feels like that. He has so much, you know, love and respect and he finds the joy in it as well. And I feel like the, you were talking about like the non sequiturs and the naturalistic dialogue. And I think that's sort of the one thing that, though I wouldn't even say there's much of that in your highness because of the, uh, because it's you know trying to parody you know like crawl and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but uh, I feel like that's the one thing that sort of sh- um, I would use to connect Pineapple Express. Well, there's a couple like you know when they're in the forest and they're like playing with caterpillars and stuff. But like the one thing that feels all right, this is definitely David Gordon Green is just the really attention to strange naturalistic dialogue. Yeah, um, definitely. Or just and you know, strange sort of- naturalistic backgrounds too. Just little things he you, you, uses to you know sort of pepper the background with you know odd little art direction choices. Yeah, 
like you said, in Pineapple Express, the shot in, in the background, they, they're going up to, I think, Danny McBride's house, and in the background, on somebody's somebody on the front lawn is lift, you know, doing weightlifting in the front lawn. That's like that's yeah. a, that's a David Gordon Green kind of touch. Or the, you know? or the, the doesn't sh- mean anything. It's just interesting to put in the background and just yeah, it's just things. it's just it just feels vital. It feels like there's right. life around the uh, the edges of the frame and. Same with like the shot where, where James Franco's crying on the swing, and there's like the fat girl in the bathing suit looking through right, the chain right, yeah. fence. That's a total David Gordon Green moment for sure. Um, yeah, and I think that the naturalistic dialogue really works here, and I'm not sure because and it and I don't want to get into their next movie yet, but uh, I, it really works for me here in a way that didn't like, and I'm not sure exactly if it's because um, I bought like maybe it's just. The, the fact that they were non-actors, they, uh, you know, I, I'm sure there was some improvisation. There was improvisation and, you know. Oh, on... da- David Gordon Green doesn't believe in a script, basically. He, he, he oh, uses, really? He uses it as an outline, but he refuses to bring it to set. Oh, really? Yeah. I but didn't you know that. He did rehearse a lot with, with the actors in George Washington. I mean, oh, they, sure. That he said he that they had, you know, extensive rehearsals before they started shooting. So... Um, I'm sure, like I'm, I'm sure, a lot of those rehearsals encompass, you know, a lot of improvisation. There's there are scenes in the movie that aren't scripted. That like uh, the 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 breakup scene early in the film was unscripted. It was oh, right. just uh, you know they or and I and I believe it was filmed late in the production when these two just kind of had a, a bit of an off uh, camera relationship. And, you know, they, David Gordon Green just kind of put them in the room and just, you know, started rolling camera and just said, you know, talk to each other about this stuff. What are you what are you guys going through? You know, um, so it's a very un, it's a very unusual way of, of working. And, and again, it's a, it's a pretty courageous thing to do that, especially with untrained, non-professional actors. And I think just, and I think what really makes it work here that I really love is the sort of idea that. Like when, like they're just at the age where it's not, you know, people always have weird thoughts and sort of say weird things, but it's, it's that age where you're not self-conscious about saying weird things and saying things that don't completely make sense or they're kind of odd or things that are like, there's a, and that's mostly because your prefrontal cortex hasn't fully developed until you're 20 something. And then you're, you're able to sort of impulsively say whatever's on your mind, even if it's not called for. Right. I feel this whole movie is basically about the prefrontal cortex. That's what I was, I was going to go into that. Yeah, totally. Um, As a neuroscientific (laughs) explanation. Yeah. That'll, that'll come up every now and then. If there's, if there's there's two words that I would use to describe David Gordon Green's movies, they're cold and scientific. This sounds like a wacky like DVD edition. George Washington, the Cortex edition. Yeah. Or whatever the, the, yeah. That'd be nice. Um, but, you know, and there's like this – and there's even parts where the narration is just blatantly untrue. Like there's one part where Nasia's, uh, Nazia says, uh, like, one time George found a dead man in a ditch and he brought him back to life. And like there, <laughs> there's like – like she's talking about the past and she's talking about how he's going to be the president of the United States someday and – and like it's just this weird uh, sort of thing that's that's it's not telling the story, it's not giving backstory, it's not giving exposition, it's just sort of setting a tone and setting a feeling for the characters and and because the movie isn't you know is is so loose narratively, and I think all of his movies you know um, 
I, you could probably much divide Which is his movies. What I love about him. <laughs> you can divide his movies pre and post Pineapple Express. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if his next movie is also going to be a comedy with this with uh, jo- uh, with Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. I, I'm, I'm I'm trying to be. Pineapple I'm, Express is one of my favorite com- comedies of all time. I think it's hysterical, but yeah. I do th- I do think that I'm not sure how much of that is really David Gordon Green and how much of that is like just the actors. You know, just being really great. And Seth Rogen wrote it, right? And see, yeah, Seth Rogen and uh, what's his writing partner name? Evan Goldberg. Uh, uh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. They wrote it, and it was. I mean, that's just a. It's just a really great movie. But I'm kind of disappointed that, and you know, it's obviously it's too early. Snow Angels was what 2007. Six. Yeah. Okay, Snow Angels 2006. So it's not like it's been forever since he's done a movie like that. Right. Um. So we'll see. Well, you know, I mean, I. You know, the, th- the whole thing about Your Highness, I think, is just, I mean, it's, first of all, it's one of the most fascinating miscalculations by a great director yes. in, in recent memory. Miscalculation I mean, is exactly how I would describe most of I mean, its n- problems. And not just him, the whole cast. Yeah. I mean, but I, and I think mm-hmm. the, what the cast was thinking was, okay, we're in the hands of David Gordon Green. He will make this work. He, you know, they had, had every reason to trust that he would make it work. And I think David Gordon Green just thought, Okay, I you know I can make this work, um, and I and I want to try special effects. I want to try you know a total. I want to do a hundred eighty degree turn from the stuff I usually do, and you know. And I think what happened was he got on the set and got completely overwhelmed by the budget, the size of the movie, the scope of it. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of room for improvisation based on, you know, the time of the, that the story takes place. Right. And it just, and I'm sure he had like studio heads breathing down his neck the whole time, you know, saying you can't do your improvisational thing and take a long time with this. We need this movie now. And you got special effects to deal with. And I think, I think the whole thing just caved in on him and it just, it, 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 it completely derailed his, what what he does what he does best as a director right and even even i think even like most of the stuff that doesn't work even just strictly as what you know jokes that aren't funny is just sort of miscalculations of well danny mcbride is funny so he'll be funny you know in this but you take away sort of his primary weapon which is his dialect you know and danny mcbride's voice and the way he over enunciates things and just like that's and you make him, you saddle him with the really awkward accent, mm-hmm. which it's kind of funny to see him do for about five minutes. And then the rest of the movie, you know, the jokes don't work as well. And then you give someone who's so brilliant in Pineapple Express, you give James Franco just complete straight man role with no. And then, yeah. and you don't know if, you know, you take the story a little too seriously. And it's yeah. just, it feels like, yeah, even from the, and I don't, and I'm obviously, I didn't, I can't see. Uh, the I didn't I didn't see the initial script, but I feel like the initial script wasn't too strong because there's not a lot of really great gags or concepts or anything in it either. No, and David McBride, or Danny McBride, you know, wrote himself that role. So right. What was he thinking? You I know? don't. I, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's just it's 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 depressing to think about, but it'll be fast. You know, if David Gordon Green does go back to making the kinds of movies he, you know, that we're talking about, uh, it'll be fa- fascinating to kind of go back to his filmography and just see that look like curious little stain right there in yeah, the middle that, you, yeah. that uh universal comedy that yeah. that that'll be the collection it'll be like the uh you know when they uh the you Howard know when they, the duck of his filmography you know when they, they talk about like oh marx brothers these are the mgm years those were the uh those yeah, those right. were david yeah. gordon green's uh universal years mm-hmm. 
Special beside the fact that you're new back in town and you don't know what kind of guy he is. If he's so horrible, why are you his best friend? What are you even talking yes, about? What do you got to do? Tony, will you please have sex with me? Please. With the success, well, the critical success of his debut on his belt, uh, David Gordon Green took a road trip with his friend Paul Schneider to revisit their hometowns to see what kind of memories would stir up between the two of them, and it was. You know, more just like a laid-back laid back road trip of sorts where they had a notepad and sort of just, you know, uh, freeformed with some ideas. And they had this project in mind uh, a while back, uh, sort of a semi-autobiographical depiction of their experiences being in love and with relationships. Uh, Green's second film here resulted in a very personal, non-story of sorts about the contemplative moments we share with somebody we grow extremely close to and sometimes have no idea why. Zoe Deschanel and Paul Schneider are the two main stars in All the Real Girls, which came out in 2003. Uh, Paul plays a womanizer who is confronted with his uh, first true feelings of genuine love when his best friend's sister comes back into town, played by Zoe Deschanel. And she's sort of the naive love interest who is kind of inexperienced, I should say, to the world of serious relationships. He's a little bit older, but still immature. She's younger and seems mature enough at first to take on this relationship. However, they're sort of trapped in a a state of arrested development of sorts, with kind of the mindsets of adolescence experiencing these new feelings for the first time. They're surrounded by friends and family, um, you know, they, and they all don't seem very connected to their environment, but they choose to adapt, whether if it's out of obligation or complacence. But this is another movie where I don't know if it's necessarily about how strong the characters are, but about a place, a time, a mood that sort of invades me to this day. Uh, you know, there's an awkwardness surrounding these relationships, and it's represented tonally in this film with some very strange humor and in extremely realistic scenes that allow the film to breathe, even if it, you know, plays out at a very languid pace. To me, this is not a movie about falling in love and then falling out of love. It's a movie about having no idea how to communicate what love is when it's actually felt, which is kind of why I have a hard time communicating how much I love this movie. And for me, it's will always remain my favorite movie about relationships. Um, but for very, very personal reasons, I would say. Just because, I mean, you know, just to sort of, you know, back up my statement, a lot of it has to do with the fact that I happen to have my first love, I fell in love with my best friend's sister, and we got into a fist fight over her. And uh, once we actually dated, she cheated on me, which is pretty much what happens in this film. And so a lot of it brings up, you know, it's like going through an old photo album and reliving some of these experiences. But the way the story is told, I think, really grabs hold of me. It's a very immersive experience. And um, I don't know. I I can't 
say enough good things about this movie. It's it still holds up to this day as being a really personal and profoundly uh, moving experience for me. And uh, Colin, what are your yeah. thoughts? I, I want to I want you to launch right into. Okay, well, um, you know, I like I said, I saw this movie before uh, I saw George Washington. It was my the first one of his movies that I saw, and I going in, I knew a little bit about his. Uh, his you know, I'd heard him. He's you know being compared to Terrence Malick and everything. Um, and I just remember just from the first scene, just being completely swept up in the film and thinking, "Oh, what is this? You know, what what do we have here? This is something special already." Um, and you know, by the you know, and then by the end of the movie. Um, I, I I couldn't get out of my seat. I I just kind of had to sit there and and you know, I, I mean I was just so blown away and, and moved to tears. I had not seen uh, a director make these kinds of choices before. I had not seen uh, you know dialogue that seemed so stylistic feel so natural and poetic and you know unabashedly so. Um, that I, you know, when, when the lights went up, I just kind of, you know, stayed in my seat for a long time and just tried to try to process it. And it had nothing to do with anything that, you know, registered for, you know, with me personally about the story. Cause I was at the time in a relationship and very happy in that relationship. And, but there's something about, and I had to, you know, I had to been in other relationships before and had breakups and all that. Um, but there was something about that breakup scene uh, between Zoe Deschanel and Paul Schneider that just devastated me. I mean, there was something so raw and uh, unusual about it because, you know, they never once, you know, make physical contact with each other during that scene. And their dialogue just was like, they, they like Jim said, they couldn't communicate, not not, not just their, their, you know, the, the love that they had for each other, but this horrible these horrible feelings they couldn't even communicate with each other and at one point you know uh during the argument zoe deschanel's dialogue completely fades out and all we hear is paul schneider saying you know i don't even know who you are anymore why don't you you know put your fucking hair back on and come back because she had changed her hairstyle you know at, at that point and there's something about that that just I don't know I, I i i i've never seen a, a scene like it before um, you know, scenes of, uh, you know, him dancing for her at the bowling alley, but she doesn't want her to watch, you know, it, you know, there's been so many conventions of, of romantic movies and romantic comedies and everything, you know, scenes that we, we see over and over and over again. And I just, I love that he never made a single obvious choice with any scene or any moment in this movie. He would, you know, he would take... Uh, you know, uh, a scene of them, you know, walking through this idyllic, you know, um, pathway and all of a sudden, you know, they make a fart joke or something like that. Uh, and I think that's one of the keys to his success is that as a, as a director, uh, you know, who's, you know, uh, dances on the edge of pretentiousness is because he knows where to put a joke so that he, you know, 
So to, just to let you know, hey, I'm not all serious here. You know, I <laughs> I like a good you know piss and fart joke as much as anybody. I mean, one of the brilliant, one of those brilliant like background uh, things that happened in this movie is Paul Schneider. Late at night, they're all sitting around a campfire. Paul Schneider's in the background taking a leak, and he's got his pants and his underwear down to his ankles when he's doing it. Like that's just that sort of like childishness that you know kind of is is peppered throughout his movies. Um, and I don't know. I just there's so many things about this movie that. Uh, that I love. I love all the all the musical choices. I love that you know there's a there's a there's a long dialogue scene between Paul Schneider and Zoe Deschanel, and they're listening to a song, and the song ends halfway through the scene, and you know nothing comes after that. Uh, you know, normally you a director would want the you know song to go all the way through the scene. You know, um, little choices like that uh, th- that I just love. Um, so yeah, th- this is this is a very this movie means a lot to me. Um, it always has. I, I remember when it came out. I saw it six times. I probably contributed to half of its box office take <laughs> uh, <laughs> because really collectively, those first four films they grossed a, a total of just under five million. I mean, uh, between wow. the four of them. Uh, so it, it's it's funny when you set, when you tell people like my favorite director is David Gordon Green. Well, what's he directed? Well. He directed Pineapple Express, but that's not really, yeah, you know, yeah. he directed these other four movies that you probably never heard of. I'll rattle them off for you. You tell me if you've seen them. You probably haven't, and inevitably people haven't. Um, so, anyway. So, I, I... Let's get a different take. Yeah. Yeah, there, we actually, uh, we, got a, we got a message, um, someone who, who says he act uh, from a reader. I don't remember the readers, or not reader, listener. Sorry. I don't remember his name, but he he said he he prefers it when me and uh, when uh, when we all really agree on something and really passionate about something. Um, he says he his sort of he really didn't like when we were arguing about Rob Zombie. Um, so I, I just figured I'd take this opportunity to apologize to him because I could not stand this movie. Um, like thirty minutes in, I You're was not alone though. So I thirty I minutes in, I was just I felt like I had been watching it an hour already. It's really just interminable just scene after scene of them walking around at magic hour saying you know precious things and it's not precious in a i mean there there are things i recognize as true in this movie and it's not this doesn't feel calculated um this doesn't feel like like uh like a calculated attempt this isn't a little miss sunshine where it's an a, like a calculated attempt to try to be to interesting and arty strings. and you know to pull in an audience and to pull heart you know it's not it's not love story but i don't feel it's much deeper than love story and i don't and it's just there's nothing i find compelling about it at all i didn't i none of except with an exception of danny mcbride every time he came on screen i got extremely happy because i just knew i'd actually be entertained because you know he's just naturally very funny um and but it's just all the dialogue i found really dreary i didn't find the the uh i didn't really like the uh the 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 initial sort of um plot of the growing rift between uh tip which is zoe deschanel's character's brother and paul which is paul schneider's character like over this, like it's set up to be sort of the main thrust of the movie, and then it just sort of gets dropped by the wayside. Um, and then there's other things that are sort of set up, and then they're also sort of dropped. And 
it, it just well, felt it gets disrupted because I mean, Tip finally has a bigger problem than that, and that he's going to be a dad. All right, yeah, but so this it's isn't like, a... yeah. Well, of course he's going to like okay, okay. Well, you're obviously not my biggest problem. Actually, I need you to be here as a friend now because. I, I got a much bigger problem, and I'm willing to look, overlook the fact that you're in a relationship with my sister because, you know, I'm I'm this drunken idiot who you know uh, walks around with sweatpants and a fanny pack, and now I'm gonna like raise a child, you know. So I think I think that's that's it's realistic to me. It's more realistic to me that he that that sort of rift dissolves. Well, it's I think that's sort of my point is this sort of. Um, all the, what we said about George Washington, where it's like it could have easily fell into these like sort of film school traps. I feel this movie does because just because it's realistic, like doesn't make it compelling. Like there's nothing at all. And I mean, the the movie has like a seventy three percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's mostly you know adored by critics. Ebert, you know, Ebert gave it four stars. So I am I'm aware I'm sort of in the minority here. But there's I just found nothing about it compelling. I didn't find the story compelling. I didn't find the characters interesting. I don't think they elaborate enough on Paul Schneider's character. Um, and it's just every shot and the same way, you know, unlike it, it's sort of the same kind of town as George Washington, where it's these people who are sort of poor and, you know, mostly out of work. And, you know, his mom collects a bunch of junk in the front yard and everything. And um, But unlike that movie, which sort of reveled in the rust and sort of the abandoned buildings and things like that, this movie you know, in trying to capture the emotions of, you know, the love and everything, it mostly looks like they're walking around heaven. Uh, <laughs> um, and it's, and it's just so dull uh, to me. Uh, obviously, you know, the cinematography is fine, but it's just, it, I don't find it interesting or compelling. I just find, mostly find it boring. And I, I can't, I, I can't take the, uh, just, it, just, it, it's just the precious dialogue of them saying just, sweet cute things and uh it, like it just it felt like two hours of people telling each other that they loved each other and then they didn't love each other and they were sad like it was like for the first hour it's mostly conversations at the magic hour mm-hmm. of them talking about how much they love each other well there's two scenes in particular i mean the the bedroom scene where they're making out they have a long conversation while that song plays out and then the um the hotel room scene I think both of that, both of those scenes, sort of speak volumes about their characters in ways that, you know, you don't necessarily need a, a full entire background on why Paul Schneider became, you know, who he is or whatever. You know, a lot of it just probably has to do with the fact that he's never had a father figure, and you know, the relationship with his mom is really, you know, intense and you know, very uh, dissonant at times, but. But if he's a but he's a womanizer, but never at any point do we see him struggling with that. Like by the time we see him, he might as well have not ever been a womanizer because it's like he sees her, and then that that part of him is completely gone. Well, in the bar, he sort of reflects on his previous actions, right? But it when never he's, uh, it's never a struggle with him. Like I thought the and then okay, so first I thought the struggle was going to be between him and Tip, and then that sort of just disappeared. And then I thought the struggle was going to be him trying to reconcile his old self with this new relationship that he doesn't want to fuck up. But there really isn't much of that. Like he, he really doesn't do anything. Like there's really not a moment where he's tempted or there's a moment where he gets freaked out by the intimacy and runs away. Like, Oh no, I, I, I would disagree with that. I would say the scene where, you know, I mean, there, there, there are a few scenes in this movie where they are being very like physically intimate with each other. 
and he just makes the choice to not care, carry through with that intimacy. You know, he, he, he does not want to have sex with her uh, just just out of fear more than anything else. But also just, you know, he, he, he's looking at it as, as a sign of respect um, because he, he's, he's used to not have he's used to having sex with women that mm-hmm. he doesn't really respect that much. And so he's he's going to you know, he's he's trying to make the choice to do the respectful thing. And it I, I, I disagree. I think there you can you can see the struggle in, in that. Um, I mean, you know, you know, I, I, I think that uh, just him. Um, sorry, I forgot where I was going to go with this. Okay. Um, I, I feel like he wants to maintain a sense of purity in the relationship itself. Yes, and, that's, that's what I was going to say. And he doesn't, yeah. and he never really experiences that before. He never experienced that before, and he wants to try that, you know, and, and almost like, you know, and, and one of the final lines is like, no one said we had to be perfect. Well, he's trying to maintain this sort of per- perfect ideal of a relationship now that he's finally found a reason to invest in that with her. And it's almost like, well, you know, what happens when when you evolve? You sh- we should have sex. And... You know, I'm I'm sure that desire exists in her. I think in the hotel room, she expected that to happen, and when it didn't, it sort of manifested in her transgression. I think. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I think definitely. that's exactly what happened. And I, I having experienced that with a relationship myself, it's one of those things that I identify with. And I often wonder, well, what if none of these things that happened in this movie happened to me? Would I still, you know, be enveloped by it? Absolutely. Because I was, yeah, <laughs> and, a lot and I was of it, in the, I was in like the best relationship in the world when I saw this movie. You know, I yeah. had no no reason to believe it would ever dissolve. Of course it did, but that's another that's a whole other thing. But um, uh, you know, I I definitely I definitely was in, in you know obviously emotionally invested in, in every aspect of this movie. Um, so I mean, you said like uh, you know that you know when Danny McBride came on the screen, you know that 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 made you happy because he was, you know, going to make you laugh. Yeah, at the very like, least, there would be something entertaining, or something right. interesting. You, don't, you didn't find Tip entertaining at all? No. I mean, it's just, like, one of the strangest character creations, uh, you know, just, just... I thought he was very boring. Like, what, 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 what's so strange about him to you? Well, just the, his physical appearance, uh, just the kind of... Uh, he's very much a child. Yeah. Um, you know, he's uh, just that kind of... that. It's it's hard it's hard to tell what era he's from, you know. He's got a little bit of a fifties hairdo, but he's got like the the jean jacket and and the and the fanny pack and the sweatpants and the this kind of uh, I don't know this kind of it's kind of this mumbling uh, you know he's just kind of mumbles a little bit. I don't know, just one of the, it's one of those characters I just thought was a fascinating creation. Um, uh, you know, because normally, like as an antagonist, you know, or uh, you know, which is kind of what he is to 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 Paul Schneider's character, um, a little bit. But you know, you 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 wouldn't expect that kind of a of a character. You expect kind of a you know, or I don't, or I, at least I would expect you know, kind of a I don't know, a, a lunkier kind of you know, blank slate. Um, you know, just I don't know. I, I I don't know. I, I enjoyed that character. Very a lot much. of these characters feel really stunted and sort of, yeah. You know, they have they have difficulty, you know, coming to terms with 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 
who they are and 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 the and the fact that they have issues with communication. I think a lot of that sort of reflects the town once again and how they're they're sort of perpetually locked in this environment and that the only decent job you can get is at a factory and they sort of, you know, succumb to this to this environment and I it almost seems like you know, falling in love is an audacious act, and it's something that that's that's the only hope that they have in this town to cling to. It's like, you know, if if I can just hold on to this relationship, then my life will maintain some sort of stability. And I sense that, you know, that's what we all long for, and you know, hope hope we can acquire in life. And I I, I feel like that. You know, there are elements of this movie that reflect universal themes. I think a lot of people have been through some of these things that the characters have been through. And I understand when people say, it just it just didn't work for me, maybe just because of the stylistic choices. I also I also feel like that's that they're the same as the characters in George Washington, but in George Washington it worked because the characters are 12 and they're supposed to be confused. And I felt like every single character in this movie is like what 27 or something and just and just oh i don't know i don't know and like doesn't know how to handle like like these feel like you haven't been to hammond indiana patrick i guess not <laughs> i maybe i haven't been to hammond indiana that's my problem there are 30 year olds who act like 12 year olds left and right yeah i just i did i like i just I've, i just i had no respect for any of these characters they didn't like i don't i don't have respect for some for people like that or for it's just i don't understand what you're what his problem was or why, why does I, I just, I feel like I've never ever felt like that. I've never felt like, Oh, this is love and I'm in love. So this has to be pure. So I have to contain this and to like, that's not ever how I've ever approached anything like that. And I just, I don't understand that sort of mentality. Um, and I don't find it. And again, I mean, it's, if I found any of this compelling, I wouldn't have to, I wouldn't have to relate to it in any way. But the problem is because of the sort of lackadaisical approach that, you know, David Gordon Green takes with most of his, you know, movies and this movie, unlike, you know, something like Undertow, which has a, you know, it sort of takes its story and structure from Night of the Hunter, which is one of the most like tense movies ever. And, you know, uh, George Washington, even though that's very lyrical and poetic, there's still that sort of, cataclysmic event that happens and it's just about them dealing with it like i feel out of all of them this has the least amount of story well maybe it's just too personal and like it it can alienate its audience that way like he wanted to basically i mean the idea was to sort of let's go back in time and 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 you know delve into what our experiences were and yet i think that people can these things have happened to to, to people, uh, you know. And it's not just, even it's not even really going back in time because he, you know, again, he made this movie when he was you know twenty six, twenty seven years old, something right, like that. Right. And that's the time to make a movie about relationships, and that's what you know. That was like part of what he he and Paul Schneider wanted to do with this is like let's let's make a movie about this now. Let's not wait until we're you know in our forties and fifties and we start idealizing all our relationships. Let's talk about. You know the awkwardness of it, the of them, the uncertainty of them, and you know trying to you know maneuver or you know our way through you know the this minefield that is you know being in love and being in a relationship and all the things you could do wrong and all the all the choices that you think are the right choices in them that actually turn out to be the wrong choices and. Uh, I think that's why the movie works as well as it does is because it does come from a personal place and it does it does feel authentic 
Um, and and uh, you, you said that it, it feels like they're like having these conversations in heaven and on a cloud and everything. And yeah, I mean, that's part of it, though. That's part of idealizing the, you know, in the, in the first half of the movie is sort of both characters idealizing each other to that extent where, you know, the, fir- the first few months or, you know, first year or so of being in love with somebody can alter your, you know, your perception of the world around you. Suddenly everything is heavenly. Suddenly everything is better. And, and, and you can have these kind of like, you know, wistful, precious conversations with somebody. And, you know, if your friends ever heard you saying these things, you know, you'd get a lot of shit at the bar for it. Um, you know, and, and, and I think he captures that so well. Um, and then the second half is, it captures the, the, the shit storm that takes place after the breakup so well. Mm-hmm. Um, the, in, in a way that most movies attempt but never really achieve. You know what I'm thinking, maybe? Yeah. Before I ever had a relationship, the, the sort of my understanding and my definition of relationships came from two places. One, sort of the same place everyone's is, is their parents. And my parents, you know, they're, they're happy, but they're not, you know, they're just, they sort of just work together. They're sort of, you know, they live together. They don't, they're not constantly, you know, just looking in each other's eyes. You know, no one would be after 20 years of marriage or anything like that. All right. So I, so that from that, I, my idea of relationships is it's sort of just a, a friendship. It's a partnership. And then the second movie I, the second thing that really influenced me is sort of the movie that really got me into movies, which is Annie Hall. And no one, I don't think, could ever really accuse Woody Allen of being romantic when it comes to romance. When it comes to, like, films and stuff like that, he's very romantic. But I I think he's very realistic, and he has sort of a very realistic and sort of pragmatic kind of approach to relationships, which is, you know, it's a, it's a partnership and you love someone, but then sometimes it ends and that's fine. And I think that's always how I've sort of felt and how I've approached it, and I've just, I've never felt that... I, I well, never felt what you're describing, where it's just like the world is suddenly heaven, and I'm floating, and like, <laughs> like that's just not how I've ever approached things. And it just feel maybe it's just you know I'm completely open to the idea that it's just a fundamental disconnect. But at the same time, you know, a movie like this, which is like the, literally the first 45 minutes, almost feel entirely shot at the magic hour. People having sort of inane conversations. Like, Which is really audacious to present in a movie. Just yes, it's very know. audacious. Yeah. And I would say, it, it, you know... I feel Are like they really at- inane, though? I mean, they're talking about their fears. You know, they're talking about, you know, what, you know, their, uh, you know, she talks about, you know, she doesn't know what she wants to do with her life. You know, I mean, she's 16, of course, but... You know, it's not, they're not completely inane. They are, they are talking about, you know, uh, some of their deepest, darkest secrets. And, you know, just in that hotel room when she shows yeah, him her scars. scars on her yeah. body, that's a very revealing moment for her. It's a, there's nothing inane about it. Well, no, not in, that, not in that conversation, but I think just, it's just mostly, most of the conversations they have aren't really about that, or they just sort of, I don't know, it, it it's just uh, sort of the, I wish I I wish I had take, taken better notes, but I just sort of stopped taking notes after the first thirty minutes because I was just no, I know what you're saying. Though. I I I understand. There like are, it feels a lot of non sequiturs, you know, similar yeah. to George yeah. Washington, but sure. I didn't feel what they were rooted in. So it's just I don't know. There's just something about this that feels very fundamentally different from George Washington that 
means that that movie worked for me so well and this movie just did not work for me at all. Right. And I mean, again, I, I usually, I usually make the assumption when I'm in the minority about something like this, that I'm incorrect and that maybe one day I'll get it. And if I don't, that's fine. Well, it's a movie that, you know, you, you, you I don't, you bring yourself to, to, to these experiences and, you know, I'm not saying that you have to identify with a movie in order to have an overwhelming emotional experience to it. You know, because there are plenty of movies that I can't relate to that I, you know, I, you know, that I have an emotional experience to. Hey, I've, I've never, I've never grown up in a, you know, I've never grown up in poverty in a post-industrial town, and I, exactly, you know, cried during George Washington. I'm not, and I, and again, <laughs> um, there's just, uh, you know, it's, um, it's just because this movie is so much about emotion and tone. And about these just feelings and so little about story and it just – and there – and I kept trying to find where things were going and, and maybe that was the mistake. But even the second time I, I – because I, actually the first time I saw it, I couldn't remember anything. Like it left no impression on me. Um, and, but it was just – yeah, it, it's, it's just I don't – I don't – yeah, it's just it does completely – not built for it, I guess. It's the only yeah, well, way I can you know, put it. Like I said, I saw the movie like six or seven times when it came yeah. out in theaters, and I saw people walking out in the middle. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just, yeah. You just, you, you just, <laughs> you just. I, I envision that you just did a little. Knees. It's like you're not, a, you're not alone. You uh, I, I think I thought you made a little origami, um, you know, model of them, and then I you just, just smashed I just it. Thought of it. That's <laughs> what I just thought I heard. I thought he just put up his, ar- yeah, his arm. Yeah, walked and out went- of the movies and how dare you? It deserved more than that. Um, no, but it's like one of those movies where when I've shown it to people, it's not like, "What's wrong with you? Why didn't you get it?" See, that's yeah. why I don't show it to people and I don't <laughs> hype it up to people. Like, yeah. first of all, I don't, I don't, I don't it hype it up. I don't want to sit in a room with anybody and watch it because I don't want them to see me blubbering. You know, right? <laughs> yeah. See, that to me, you know, that's my. I I watch this movie privately, you know, alone, um, and I don't hype it up either because it's a. First of all, it's a hard movie to describe to people, um, just like a, like like a lot of his movies, right? Um, and it's just it is a, a, a part of it is you know what you bring to it, you know, personally. Mm-hmm. You know, I I, I know people. I, I've talked about this movie with with people, and and they've come back to me and saying, like you said, I, it just didn't work for me. I just didn't have the same experience as, as you did. Um, you know, and like, because like you said, it is rooted more so in emotion and feeling than, uh, than story that, you know, it is, it, it, it is, uh, I guess it is a personal experience, even though for me, when I saw it, those kinds of personal experiences, those breakup experiences happened years and years and years ago and I'd put them out of my mind and that never really resonated with me, but the movie still like had a chokehold on me. Um, but still, you know, it's, it's, you know, maybe, maybe if I'd seen it on a different kind of day in a different kind of mood, maybe I wouldn't have had that experience. I don't know. And I think, and again, it's like I said before, there's not, there's no part of it that doesn't feel personal and there's no part of it that feels calculated and there's no part of it that feels very pretentious. I mean, again, some of the, some of the dialogue that just, just, that just sort of feels like non sequiturs and stuff doesn't feel like it goes anywhere. But for the most part, it feels really honest. And for that reason, you know, I would never call it a bad movie. Um, I, I would say that I, I hated it cause I really do, uh, really do hate watching it, but I would, 
But I don't, you know, it's not a movie like something that's like, okay, let's say like Blindside, where someone's like, oh, that movie really moved me and was emotional. I can point out, well, no, it's calculated attempt to move you. And it's, you know, right. it's not a movie like that. And I'm, you know, so uh, I, I mean, I really did hate this movie and I don't want to downplay that, but it's, uh, but, you know, I completely understand. Um, I, I, I mean, I understand liking it and I understand having an intense reaction to it. Um, nonetheless, um, but every every choice he makes in this movie, even the Koyana Scotsy kind of moments, I don't know. They just they just they just hit me so hard, and I think a lot of it is because I'm, you know, it's it's, it's reflecting on what I've been through and what I've dealt with. But I, I'm also engaged by how he's telling this, you know, his his version of what relationships are. I'm engaged by it. And I don't know. It's 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 difficult. It, it it's still one of those movies where it's like I've tried to explain to people. Well, there are three movies that sort of reflect my you know feelings of love or my experiences of love, and you know I can two 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 out of these three movies have have definitely you know found their audience have have really you know hit home with people. What movies are those? Uh, Once, Eternal Sunshine. And then this movie are mm-hmm. being my top three of relationship movies, and at least you know <laughs> two of those movies that I've shown, or you know, yeah, two of those movies I've shown to other people, they've responded very favorably to them. And maybe there's more to it, you know. Maybe there's just a lot, you know. There's, I don't know if there's just more fully dimensional characters there. There's you know a lot more interesting well, I techniques. Think, but... I think the other two movies are infinitely more accessible. You know, well, yeah, definitely. I, you know, even if I like this movie, I would never be surprised that once and Eternal Sunshine, even, you know, even as crazy as Eternal Sunshine is, I think that's also part of the hook yeah. for a lot of people is that Eternal Sunshine is a sort of a romantic comedy, but it mm-hmm. does it in sort of an interesting way involving, you know, metaphysics and stuff like that. But I almost feel like you can just take your review of last summer and yeah. just come to yeah. me. And sort of realize that's true. That's, last summer is another. Uh, just realize that's my yeah. last summer. Absolutely, All the Real Girls is my last summer. Yeah, and I totally right. Yeah, Last Summer is a movie where it's I couldn't. You know, I could tell you different things I like about it, but for the most part, why I reacted so intensely was just you know relating to it and stuff. Um, so let's, let's briefly go through his uh, other films right. too. Um, yeah. So uh, we 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 talked a little bit about um, Undertow. Yeah. Which is a movie. It's like I said. It's sort of. Not it's not the same story, but it's sort of a similar story to Night of the Hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, it's two boys living in a dilapidated farmhouse with their, you know, their uh, their father, and uh, you know, their kind of gruff, overbearing, you know, father. And then the uh, his his brother gets out of jail and comes home to visit. Um, you know, and uh, and but then the brother sort of has ulterior motives, and it. Yeah, this is this is one of those movies too where you can literally feel the heat and the oh, yeah. tension and like the fact that you know the opening has you know a nail going into his foot. Yeah, I, mean, I feel like that's kind of how the whole movie plays. That way. was that was insane. Like yeah. Carly was watching it with me, and then she saw the nail in the foot. She's like, "Oh fuck this!" She just <laughs> <laughs> she came back later once there weren't so many shots of nails going through foots, but. And it has a great Philip Glass score. And I think what's sort of interesting, what I think sort of interesting about it is the fact that um, after about like the first half of the movie, which is the setup and the initial part where they're being chased by their you know uncle um, because he because they they have something that he wants. um, 
it actually like uh, and again this is sort of actually where the fact that it's similar to Night and the Hunter it sort of works in its favor it, because it forces you to sort of compare the two. Mm-hmm. And it really isn't that tense. There's not this sort of ticking clock where you feel he's on their tail the whole time, like a T-1000 or an Anton Chigurh or something. It's really, it's, it's really more about these boys who are already on their own, sort of, and they're already barely had a shelter. They didn't own anything, and now they're on their own, and it's really not that different. Yeah. You know, it's like very the very minor adjustment of them becoming homeless, <laughs> uh, which again is uh, which is you know none of his movies are social dramas you know meant to affect change, but they do have that sort of subtext of you know being left behind and uh, and and I think that's sort of a sly way of of commenting on it is how when these boys hit the road and they living outdoors in a junkyard, it really isn't too much of an adjustment for them. Yeah, uh, I really loved Undertow. I saw that. I watched that today. Um, I really uh, did love it. Um, I again, I don't think it's quite as powerful and moving as his other movies, but it's. And I think my, my other problem is I wasn't completely taken in by the performances by Dermot Mulroney and Josh Lucas. Yeah, I thought they're, they were they're fine. They were fine, but like there, there wasn't that. Uh, unlike the two boys, who I thought were excellent. Yeah, like. I just thought they were capable. Right. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, Josh Lucas does what he can with sort of the menacing presence, but he doesn't right. really, like, add any layers to it. or. And that, and again, maybe that's just an example where comparing it to Night the Hunter fails, because Robert Mitchum, <laughs> yeah. as we've discussed, is the most terrifying man who has ever lived. Right. Yeah, but if if, if they had tried to make him just as terrifying, then the then you know the comparisons would never cease, and it would just it wouldn't be undertow. It would be like that movie that tried to be like Night of the Hunter. You right. Know? Right. No. And I he's just he's doing his own thing on it. I think Josh Lucas is great in the movie, I, I, and Thermal Moroni. I think they're both terrific in it. Hmm. I just yeah, I just I thought they were fine, but there was never that moment, you know, that scene between them where. Like that, I should. I felt like I should have felt fireworks that scene between them, where Josh has found the uh, gold coins, and there's that, and he puts down the knife, and it's there's this tension of, well, this isn't going to end in a pleasant conversation, but he just put out the knife, so what the hell is going on, and <laughs> and like how, and and that scene is is good, but again, it's just like I didn't feel that those those fireworks that I that I feel like I could have felt, um, but I mean, again, minor complaint. It's an it's an excellent movie. And I would highly recommend it. Um, Good to hear. Snow Angels I did not see, so I let you two discuss that. Why don't you take this one, Colin? Oh, all right. Well, it's uh, Sam Rockwell um, and uh, uh, God, Kate, Kate, Kate Beckinsale. Beckinsale. Yeah. Actually um, giving a great performance for once. <laughs> yeah. D- getting basically the best performance of her career. Yeah. Um, this is this is based on a on a novel that was about as grim and bleak a suburban drama as you can get, and uh, what David Gordon Green did with it was, uh, I thought I thought it was a great adaptation because he managed to plug in just enough humor. Uh, it's still a grim and bleak movie. I mean, my God, the ending to this movie is just devastating. Yeah. Um, but he he manages to work in a lot of humorous elements. Uh, and a sort of the un- coming. In, in a very unex- in, in, his, in his sort of trademark sort of unexpected, you know, uh, uh, way. Um, you know, like, 
you know, two, the two high school kids right. talking about how much they, you know, the girl says, you know, I, uh, you know, they're, they're gonna, uh, you know, the, they're, they're gonna change the cafeteria food or something like that. And it's gonna taste like vomit. And he says, yeah, I hate vomit, you know, <laughs> like that, you know, just little moments like that, because I, and it's something that the novel sorely needed was just some levity. Um, and uh, again, it, there's a little bit of an element of uh, coming of age. I mean, it, it's one of those. It, it, again, I'm not talking about the story of this movie because it's one of those movies that's got like three different stories kind of going on at once, and it all takes place in a small town, mm-hmm. not a mill town this time, but right. you know, a small kind of Americana town where uh, you know, uh, you know, just uh, just a lot of. Um, I'm trying to remember now. Like I have the things that <laughs> go on, but I know uh, Sam Sam Rockwell and Kate Beckinsale are uh, a couple who they're divorced. He's an alcoholic, and you know, trying desperately to get in her good side, and they have a daughter together. Um, yeah, he sort of and, tries to he he, try, he tries to find his faith again, and right, he, tries, he finds Jesus and everything. Yeah, yeah. redeems himself or tries yeah. to. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, Griffin Dunn is in the movie also. Oh yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, there's another subplot involving another divorce taking place. While um, the, the the I guess he's the lead character, the the the, the adolescent guy, the teenage boy. Yeah, yeah. yeah as, as he's and to and, and he, he's related in a way to in, in how their story relates is he uh, works at the same place Kate Beckinsale works and she used to babysit him. I believe that's the, that's their connection. So it's kind of like one of these Robert Altman type things where every, these three stories are interconnected somehow. Um, it's, 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 it can be a hard movie to watch sometime, but man, there's, there's a scene in a bar, uh, with Sam Rockwell. Uh, again, it, there's, it, it's kind of a non sequitur scene mm-hmm. and, it, there's not much in the way of dialogue from it, and you could again accuse David Gordon Green of maybe doing, you know, kind of being over stylistic or whatever. But it is one of the most moving, bizarre scenes of in a movie I've ever seen. It was like the weirdness of it sort of moved me to tears, and it doesn't need to be in the movie, but I can't imagine the movie without it. Uh, you know, and it's unfortunate. This movie, Snow Angels, came out. It was like one of the last movies to be released by Warner Independent, which which eventually just dissolved and doesn't exist anymore. And so it was like one of the last movies on their slate that they had to put out for release. And they didn't really do anything with it. They just kind of put it out there uh, and let it, you know, die a, a quick death at the box office. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just didn't get any attention. The DVD has nothing on it, no commentary track or anything. And, you know, David Gordon Green has always given great commentary tracks on all of his movies. You know, I've except, noticed. Except for this one. Yeah. You, know, you know what I've noticed? Um, might be. He has uh, really horrible posters. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I, that's I, another problem. I remember it? walking by Undertow every day when I worked at Blockbuster and thinking, Oh, there's another shitty mid-level indie thriller. Like, right? Yeah, because <laughs> of the no, floating I totally heads. Agree with that. I mean, and he's never had the right advertising. And, I, I think he's just had a lot of bad luck. Yeah, I mean that's not up. his doing. But and then Jim lent me the DVD for Snow Angels, and I'm like, I this looks like a sleep aid. This, 
Like God. it's it's literally no. just Kate Beckinsale's no. head in in middle of snow. Yeah, yeah, I, it's a bad poster. I, I know. I just I think that's that's just it. It's like this is a guy. He's gotten all the critical accolades he you know that any director could ever hope to get. And I think that's why he turned to doing mainstream comedies because he's made four great movies in a row. Um, you know, and you know is getting critical success across the board. But nobody goes to see his movies. I think he just like screw it. I want to make a movie. Where I actually, actually have an see. audience, yeah. you know. Plus, <laughs> I can only imagine how much, how much. I can only imagine how much fun it is to make those kind of movies, you know. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it was a blast. I yeah. mean, you could tell it was just like he, he, you know, he was just have, having a ball making Pineapple Express, and so that's why you know it makes sense that he would want to take the next logical step and do something like Your Highness, which adds special effects and big scenery to the mix. And okay, you know, hopefully he, you know learned his lesson from that and yeah. you know and, but and i and i and, and, you know sam rockwell is also going to be in this jonah hill comedy so oh, that that's gives hopeful. me hope right yeah, there that sure. it's a little more sophisticated than than your highness and you know so he's a, he's remarkable in snow angels he really is i mean you he mentioned is, that scene yeah. in the bar but there's also well, two uh, two scenes you know involving you know him confronting his uh ex-wife's new boyfriend outside yeah, uh, yeah. This, the second one in particular is heartbreaking, and it's one of those, you know, he he portrays al- al- alcoholism without overplaying it, and you know he he reveals his true colors in a way that's not you know ever forced. It's, it feels really naturalistic, and even though that this is his first time adapting source material uh, with a book, it, it still feels thoroughly his own work too. Yeah, so, definitely. Um, we can briefly touch on Pineapple Express since we're. Uh, I think we touched on that a lot, actually. We yeah, did. we did. We didn't want. To, we didn't want to <laughs> see. We don't want to talk about Your Highness because we want to talk about the, the Universal movie that really works. And Pineapple yeah. Express just well, it's works. Great. Are you mean, are you talking about Universal Studios? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I mean by Universal. That's oh okay, because that's actually a Sony film. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah. All right. I'm my mistake. Though. <laughs> that's what I was wondering. That's like, okay. But uh, Your Highness is a Universal film, and I don't know if the, the Jonah Hill movie is or not, but you know. I don't yes. think he'll be making a lot of movies for Universal after after this one. So this uh, Jonah Hill one's Fox. Oh, okay. And the oh. two and he didn't write it, and the two writers are new. So yeah. Oh wow. That'll no. Be uh, but I'm I'm, I, I'm gonna say obviously you can't you know judge a book by its cover and you can't judge a movie by its IMDb synop uh, by its IMCD right. synopsis, but. A college student on suspension who's coaxed into babysitting the kids next door, though he's fully unprepared for the wild night ahead of him. Wackiness <laughs> yeah. ensues. So I really do. I mean, at least it won't. You know, it won't. Well, it, it, it's slated for a December release, so that's a, a vote of confidence for you know December. We, we would hope. You know? Yeah, we would hope. Yeah. Even if, even though it's Fox, you know. Yeah. That's, which hey, is I'm, a, I'm, a notoriously I'm, awful studio. I'm thoroughly happy with. David Gordon Green putting out two movies in a year again. Disappointed that one of them was Your Highness, but hey, you know, yeah. we'll see. We'll see. We, you know, I'm I'm always going to be a fan of this guy based on his earliest work, and you know, and that includes in Pineapple Express too. So. I love I love how in Your Highness, there's literally just like one moment that feels like David like super David Gordon Green where they're chasing the sheep during the yes. wedding. And then and that, like, was the, that was the hardest like, I laughed. I think. Yeah. It's like the one moment in the entire movie that where you're like, Oh man, David Gordon Green directed this. And then, oh, yeah. I would say the, uh, the barbarian guard, 
you know, and you know, pass through these gates, and evil will have met his match. Or, you know, this delivering this line that is just—I don't know. There's something like perfect. This just one guy, this one line, late in the movie, it is perfectly delivered. Made me laugh out loud. That to me was a da- also a David Gordon Green moment. And then mm-hmm. the rest was just depressing. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I just remember my heart sinking, like in the first five minutes of this movie, what, especially the opening credits. Oh, and those I'm were just really like, horrible. Oh, oh, no, I know. This is yeah. really happening, isn't it? And oh, like, God. they yeah. decided to put voiceovers over these, like, still, like, yeah. a- still Ugh. animations or whatever, but you couldn't barely hear them. And it was, it, like, and oh, right at the very end, bam, directed by David Gordon Green. Yeah. I was like, no, this is really <laughs> happening. No. Oh, God. I'm, gonna, I'm willing to forgive him. So. I, well, of course wow. I'll forgive him. Yeah. You know? What happens, it's, you know? You stay he loyal. To make a, you know, he wanted to make a big special effects movie, and he was surrounded by his college buddies. You know, David Gordon Green is – I mean, uh, uh, Danny McBride is a college buddy of his, you know. So, you know uh, – it's it's it, but it's time for him to stop doing that guy favors. You know, yeah. it's time to stop with the eastbound and down and stop doing everything. Oh, you don't like right. eastbound and down? It's okay, but it's I mean it's fine, but it's like after this, I I, I can't look at Danny McBride right now and not get a little angry. You know? <laughs> I, I just can't. Like you 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 dude, you're 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 funny, but you're taking my favorite director down a path that I don't want him to go down. <laughs> I loved Eastbound and Down. I really adored that. No, that's a lot of people. I like it. It's not, you know, it's fine. I wasn't, I wasn't even like super sold on Danny McBride. I mean, I really liked him in Pineapple Express, but Eastbound and Down was where I was like, oh, okay, this guy's really fucking good. Well, I think having the Jody Hill influence on that show too helps in terms of. Well, it's mostly Jody Hills. I think David Gordon Green only directed some, right? Or did he direct all? He directed, I think, four episodes in the Mm -hmm. first season, three or four episodes. Okay. No, the I, last, the I liked, last few. I like Jody Hill's approach to comedy. You know, I enjoyed Observe and Report very much. So, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see in time. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic, just based on what I've seen of David Gordon Green, and he's always going to be one of my favorite. Right. Directors. It's, it's not, it's not like a, it's not, yeah, it's not a situation like Woody Allen or something where it's like, oh my god, it's been so long since he's made a really yeah. great, you know, yeah, it really, you know, he's really a young filmmaker, and you know. And God bless him. Yeah, God bless him. All right. Well, <laughs> that brings us to the end of the show. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Colin, for, for sure, joining us. It was us. fun. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll put up a link to your trailer for, for March, April. And, uh, oh, you know, when whenever you de- how, however you decide to distribute it, of course. Um, we're very much looking forward to it. So Thank you. Excellent. Um, and if people want to read some of your work, uh, you, you know, obviously some of your older reviews are at efilmcritic.com. And uh, where are you currently writing for at, the, at, at right now that's going to be published? Well, every uh, year for the last couple of years, I've contributed to this uh, reference book that gets picked up by colleges and university called McGill's Cinema Annual. And it's uh, published by the Video Hound people. Oh, cool. Um, who, make those gigantic video guides that um i don't know if people buy those anymore or not but um <laughs> i hope they do because they were the guilds in yeah. business and keeps <laughs> me uh, uh getting paid as a writer so yeah. i mean uh, these are books you can't you can buy them on amazon i don't recommend it because they're like 200 bucks they're reference books so they're for colleges to buy but that's <laughs> that's what that, i that's hey, who i write that's a great right accomplishment now. awesome yeah it is it's fun cool. all right sir um 
our next episode is a special treat for my birthday. We're going to be uh, talking about my favorite director, Mr. Sam Raimi. Mm-hmm. Um, we're sort of iffy on the two films to choose. The only reason why I suggest... Do you ever wish that Sam Raimi's first name was Doe? Doe Raimi. Very clever, Patrick. <laughs> well, not when you say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just, I'm sorry. My brain just... Processing. Yeah, so ne- so our next episode is going to be Sam Raimi, and the episode of that after that is going to be my favorite director, Woody Allen. Yeah, so it's going to be an exciting couple of episodes for sure for us. So we're going to get our mm-hmm. on. again uh, directorsclubpodcast.com. and directorsclubpodcast at gmail dot com. Feel free to send us uh, some feedback, suggestions, and whatnot, and we will talk to you next time when we cover Sam Raimi. Absolutely. So thanks a lot. Bye bye. Hi, folks. This is the. Uh part of the podcast where we normally put something funny and made us laugh at the end over the music, but there's nothing funny about fire safety. So please make sure that you and your family have express escape routes in the case of a fire and to check the batteries in your smoke detectors every six weeks. Once again.